Good morning, all. Uh, Tuesday, July 26th. Great show in store. Mr. Stock Trader Almanac himself. His real name is Jeff Hirsch. I wonder how many people in this room, Jeff, actually don't know who you are. They know your product, but they don't know who you are. we got to fix that. Um, so I'm really looking forward to this room. Uh, it's been um, a few days, I think last Thursday. We've kind of settled into this Tuesday, Thursday, midweek, 11 a.m. rhythm. I'm open to suggestions as to when we should do those in a particular time of day. There are puts and takes with um, every time you can think of. You know, Some would say 11 a.m. is too early in the day. I know people on the West Coast, like Aces, don't want to get up that early. Well, too bad. The other side of that, I have no sympathy for that. But the other side is I do have sympathy for our European friends who, you know, if we run these starty spaces at four or five in the afternoon, Eastern time, it gets late their hour. And certainly if we do them in the evening, it gets late. And so maybe we mix it up a little bit. I don't really know. If anyone has any suggestions as to the timing of when we should do these days of the week, time of day, please let me know. I'm always trying to make this uh trying to make these um, spaces better. I think we do have the best spaces on Twitter, period, but that's just my opinion. And judging by all the DMs I get from a lot of you folks, I think you agree with that. You know, just listening to the lyrics, that was, for those of you, Hirsch knows who that was. That was ELP, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Uh, that's back from the 70s. For those of you that weren't around back then or aren't familiar with that band, one of the great bands of when I was growing up. But it's hilarious. I'm just looking at the lyrics here. The name of the song is from the beginning. It wasn't their best hit, uh, but it was one of my faves. And I'm just looking at the lyrics here. I'm sorry, I can't keep it together. It's so appropriate. I mean, maybe this should be "Ode to Jim Cramer." Um, it says there may have, there may there might have been things I missed, but don't be unkind. I guess they're talking about me. I don't mean to be blind. Perhaps there's a thing or two I think of lying in bed. I should have said, but there it is. You see, it's all clear. You were meant to be here from the beginning. Maybe I might have changed and not been so cruel, not been such a fool. Whatever was done is done. I just can't recall. It doesn't matter at all. You see, it's all clear. You were meant to be here from the beginning. So with that, you can tell that I'm not, I don't have a very good voice. I'm not meant for singing. But it's hysterical. I go back and look at the lyrics of a lot of these songs. It's just, I can't keep it together. Um, so a few points to rant on before we get going. Um, you know, every day is something new to talk about. Um, you know, I'm just looking at some notes I jotted down here, not in any particular order, but things that catch my eye. You know, towards the end of last week, the close on Thursday, everyone's, oh, you know, after we just got this, is the first time in a million days we're above the 50 moving average. You're saying there's a chance, blah, blah, blah. XYZ doesn't go down on a given day or a given week despite crappy earnings, so the bottom must be in. Everyone piles in. The shorts go tripping over themselves to cover their shorts. You can see it particularly in the most heavily shorted names, the likes of Carvana. Uh, there's no more motivated a buyer than someone who's short. Trust me, been there, done that. And so you had a lot of short covering. Uh, people not really getting long, though. Uh, and I'll come to that in a second, but it's a great chart. I'll put some of these charts up on my Twitter feed, Jeff is talking. But I 
me just go to it here if I can find this one chart. It shows that um, basically hedge funds have been degrossing. Uh, that is to say, they're taking down both the long and the short side of their book. So they're puking longs. But when they're covering shorts, particularly in the crowded names, that's what gives you the squeeze to the upside. So um, degrossing, you know, bit back in the day before you had a preponderance of long short funds, when people would degross, they'd sell longs, the market goes down. Now when they degross, they, they take both sides of the balance sheet, they sell the longs, and they, they cover their shorts. It's not, not more annoying than, you know, in a flat market or in a market slightly going down or slightly going up, having your shorts ripped to the upside in your face for no other reason that there's someone caught on the wrong side is just trying to degross. And then people try to ascribe meaning as to why that stock is going up. And actually, I see we got John Roke in the second row. And I really, uh, John, it's been a long time since you spoke. I hope if you can shake free from your real job, maybe you can weigh in on this a little bit. But um, you look at the Goldman Sachs index of most heavily shorted names. That thing was skying for a couple of weeks. And, you know, maybe we've seen peak squeeze. Don't know. But I guess the bigger point I want to make is nobody really knows. And if you try to ascribe meaning to daily or weekly movements, that's just going to get you in a lot of trouble, which is why I always in this room, I'm always saying I'm trying to get the intermediate to longer term. I say long term. I don't mean, you know, five years. We're all dead five years from now. I'm talking about the next few months, not the next few days, or in that case, sometimes weeks. I leave that to the likes of Tommy Thornton, who's done just a fabulous job in, in, in bottom picking, uh, bottom fishing. So, um, but anyway, so you, you had this move up for a few days. People get all amped up. So you're saying there's a chance. And, you know, just when it looks like it might go north, what happens? The trap door opens on Friday. And then yesterday was a bad day, particularly the toxic Kathy type stuff. And then after the close, we had Walmart. Anyone who was surprised by Walmart, it's like one of those Hitler videos, anyone who was surprised by the Walmart numbers needs to get up and leave this room now. I don't know how many times we can talk about how the consumer is totally screwed. So, you know, it's, it's, this is the second blow up they've had in, what, a few months now? So this should come as no surprise. And the XRT, the retail ETF, which is, again, you know, one-stop shopping for all your unnecessary purchases. That thing's getting destroyed. I think it's going to go down a lot more. Uh, John Roke had it in his chart pack a few weeks ago. Uh, I recall John was looking for uh, new lows in XRT, which would put it at 50 which is, you know, right now at $60.70. So consumer remains front and center. All the stuff you're seeing on CNBC and Bloomberg TV, you've been hearing about it in this space for since the beginning of the year. So if it sounds like I got an edge in my voice, it's because I do. I don't know. These, these knuckleheads are asleep at the wheel. Like, what were they thinking? What were they looking at? Don't want to be a dick and say, I told you so. Don't want to take a victory lap. You know, how to take a victory lap without taking a victory lap. That's what some wise guy was going to say. They'll tweet right back at me. But seriously, dude. Like, come on. Let's call a spade a spade. The days have been completely, oh, the consumer is in fine shape. Never underestimate the consumer. Are you kidding me? The consumer's never had his real incomes getting eviscerated like he's been having it now. So like I said, going back to the beginning of the year, go back and, you know, and there was that podcast I did with uh, Jack Farley at Blockworks. I said, you can do one or two choices. Either you need to do to get inflation under control and have a recession, 
and you can kiss your earnings goodbye and good luck with your stock market, or they don't, and inflation just keeps cycling upward. This idea that we're going to have a soft landing, put it another way. The recession will not come down adequately. I'm not saying it's not going to come down. But it's not going to come down sufficiently to the levels that they want without a recession, without jobs being lost. The economy's overheating. The economy has overheated. We've got a record number of, of job openings. If anyone in the Austrian school, my friend Nathan, maybe someone wants to come up and talk about the Austrian school, this is classic. We've run out of factors of production, ran out of labor, ran out of energy. The economy's overheating. Period. So this is not going to change to the extent it needs to without a recession. That's my two cents. A couple other graphs, and we're going to go to Jeff. Um, there was a blur about the other day, Redfin. I'm looking at these charts. I'll put them all up on um, in my feed. And again, thank you for those of you that uh, reached out to me. Um, if you're interested in the deck I put together a week or two ago, just send me a DM and I'll send it to you. It's got a lot of good charts in it. Um, record number of um, percentage of houses that are experiencing uh, price cuts in, in, in offerings. Uh, it's at 7%, I think, now, as of like a week ago. So look at the graph. It's If, if, if Roke was... Or Nikoski was looking. This was a stock he'd be buying. It. This is this is the graph of stock of percentage of homes experiencing price cuts. This is up and to the right. This is a good chart. Uh, Bitcoin, you know, it's hilarious. These guys, yeah, they just the trend is down and to the right. Every time it, it, it you know, like a dying man, you know, on, on his last breath, it, it puts its head up a little bit. The crazies come out again. Like I don't know what it is they're looking at. I mean. Dennis Gartman, please call your office. Do more of what's working and less of what's not working. Buying Bitcoin is not working. Uh, let's see here. What else I got for you? Um, earnings. Yeah, earnings are coming in. It depends. I love this nonsense. Oh, it's better than expected, worse than expected. They game the whole system. They set the bar really low, and then they beat it, and they want to take a victory lap. And then you have the cheerleaders on CNBC saying, see? Well, let's actually look at year-on-year -year earnings. And the great, as a great Michael Belkin has pointed out repeatedly, earnings are going down. I mean, if you if you back out energy, earnings for the whole market X energy are actually falling now. Not next year, now. So the cheerleaders are going to have to explain to you on that one. Remarkably, uh, consensus estimates for 22 and 23 really haven't come down at all. Let's see how long that lasts. Sentiment, uh, fear and greed got up to 39 the other day. I don't know where it was yesterday, but you know, in a bull market, don't expect it to go up to the stratosphere. Um, you know, quite often, all you'll see is 30 or 40, 50, and that's it. Duration of the bear market, again, I'll put these all up on my feed. And this is the type of stuff I put on my chart pack. Um, you know, this 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 bear market, while, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hurt if you've been in the wrong stocks. In terms of duration, it's very young. In terms of the S&P, which, you know, really hides the... Uh, extent of the decline of the average stock. S&P only peaked at the turn of the year, so only a few months into this. And the market itself is measured by the S&P, which again, hides the real damage going on. Only down 20-some-odd percent, which is small compared to the average this century, this past century, the 41%. So there's a lot more way to go in terms of time and price. Mention hedge funds exposures. They've been degrossing. Um, curiously, though, um, as a Morgan Stanley blurb from the other day, that uh, because of short covering, in other words, they were covering more shorts than they were buying 
long than they were reducing longs, their 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 net long exposure actually went up. Um, it got up to forty four percent net long, um, which you know is still uh, low in a in a longer term context. But again, as the market's going down, these funds are getting are getting longer. Not quite what I would suggest. Cycles are, you know, are assuming the worst. The internals of the market are telling you it's going to be bad. Defensives, relative valuation, though, is through the roof. And that's where the money is flowing. Uh, so maybe the consensus position on that will be right. And, any, and then lastly, um, I'm looking at a JP Morgan graph here. This is out of date, but you get the idea. Uh, it says here, it just talks about the hedge fund, the, the short covering. JP Morgan saw a sizable covering over the last week. Uh, the U.S. short interest, high short interest stocks through the five days through Thursday of last week were up 12.5%. 12.5%. It's one of the largest five-day gains over the past year. So you're saying there's a chance. All right, enough of that. So we go to the man of the hour, uh, my friend Jeff Hirsch. Uh, I've been a secret admirer for a long while. We've actually only met a few months back uh, at the uh, CMT conference in uh, April in D.C., where our good friend Helene Meisler, and I'll try to get Helene to come in here. Jeff, maybe she can she can throw you some softball questions. I'll throw you some softball questions. In any event, uh, I've really enjoyed uh, getting to know Jeff and uh, reading his stuff. Uh, really sharp cookie. Um, I like the fact that, you know, he's – pretty flexible and he's respectful of the market. Uh, He combines fundamentals with technicals, which is the way I think you got to roll. I think to do one at the exclusion of the other, it just doesn't work for me. I'm not going to comment on other people, but it just doesn't work for me. I think you got to have a holistic, fully integrated whole brain approach to investing. And so for that reason, I like Jeff a lot because he's not dogmatic. He uses common sense. And you all are probably familiar with uh, Stock Traders Almanac which was a publication, I believe, started by Jeff's father, but I'm going to let Jeff talk about that. So in any event, uh, Jeff, it's really, I'm really glad that you're here. Um, maybe it'd be a good place to start. I, I think what we could do here is I want to yield the floor to you. Good place to start. Just talk a little bit about, you know, what you do, how you got to where you are. And then once you're done with that, get into, you know, what really catches your eye. What are high conviction views on your part? You may be agnostic on the market. Maybe there's a sector you like. Maybe there's a stock that you like. I don't know. But, um, you know, in, in what's really a sort of differentiated point of view for you? What do you believe that the market doesn't believe? Or what does the market believe that you don't believe? Jeff, without further ado, the floor is yours. Welcome, Jeff. George, such a such a pleasure. It's been great getting to know you. We've had a, a lot of fun chats, uh, a lot of informative ones. And I got to tell you, come on Coming on and hearing uh, from the beginning was just a big smile um, because my brother, my older brother, turned me on all that stuff. He's about 10 years older than me. Uh, I was, you know, elementary school age in the 70s. He was in high school and stuff. But uh, um, super fantastic. Uh, seems to make sense with the almanac, with the history that, that we, you know, have written about and, and rely on for years. Um, so it's uh, I think I was definitely meant to be here. Um I want to get into a little history, but, uh, you know, my father, who who we just lost um, at 98 in uh, November of last year, you know, is 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 an icon on the street. Um, everyone knows the Almanac. I had the pleasure of uh, learning at his feet, um, you know, 
just while you know just basking in his in this tutelage um i basically fought working for him for many years and was into other other uh other businesses uh back in 1989 when my uh my good friend looked at me and said jeff what are you doing go work for your father so i did luckily i had grown up in the business um basically started in the mailroom shipping all my acts out to brokers and and doing a lot of numbers by hand. You and I have had that uh, discussion about doing things by hand and, you know, uh, hat, hats off to Helene Meisler for bringing, you know, uh, over a hundred, uh, 120 or so sheets of graph paper and 120 number two pencils to the CMT symposium and teaching everyone how to draw hands, uh, draw, draw graphs by hand or charts by hand. I started doing the almanac calculations back in, you know, uh, middle, middle school, high school, with his little short ruler running down the market lab pages with a red pen underlining up half hour ticks and then entering them into uh, a sheet of graph paper using an adding machine. Um, so we are still very fond of uh, um, doing things by hand. You, you know, you get a lot more. Um, even the even the stock screens that we do, it's not a macro that we, we punch in. We, we sort uh, Excel spreadsheets and and watch things fall to the bottom uh, and, and see what what's going on there. So um, basically, you know, 56 years uh, on the street with the Almanac, um, put a couple other things out there. One of the, the great long term cycles I learned from Yale was this super boom cycle, the 500 percent moves following um, war and inflation, which he put out a forecast in uh, 76 and culminated it in a special report in January of 77 for a 500% move off the um, December 74 low uh, for Dow 3420 by 1990. Missed it by just uh, what, two years on the Dow. The S&P did hit it in, in, in 90, but the Dow crossed it. We have a little clipping of that in 92. And my super boom book I put out in May of 2010 with Dow around 10,000 for this move to 38,820, the same 500% from the 2009 intraday low. Um, put a lot of people off guard. And I know we're we're in a bear market here and, you know, we're both a, little, a bit bearish. You're probably a little bit more bearish than me. Um, but that long-term forecast is a testament to the cycle work that we do and even the um, incredulous uh, uh, reaction we got to it. Um, I'm reminded of my 22, uh, 22 stocks for almanac outlook where, you know, I quote the um, blood, sweat and tears, uh, classic track spinning wheel about what goes up must come down with our outlook term year. So um, we've been we've been expecting a lot of this with our seasonal and, and cyclical work. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts. You know, we, our, our basis is, is cycles, seasonality, history. And yes, as you said uh, in the fundamentals and technicals, I just passed the level one of the CMT, uh, never too late. Um, we look at internals and sentiment, you know, highs and lows and, and advanced decline lines. And some of the, the, um, forms in the back of the almanac are really geared towards keeping track of these types of, of, of patterns or these types of indicators. There's a weekly indicator section where you can put in whatever you want. There's also suggestions on the changes of, of, um, on Mondays and Fridays, I put call ratios, highs and lows, advanced declines. So that's ingrained in the almanac uh, uh, cycles and, and, and patterns and analysis. Um, we always have an eye on geopolitics and current events and, and monetary policy and sentiment, of course. Um, 
uh, we could have a discussion about the put call ratio, which I am finding is is less and less indicative. We also look at um, investors intelligence, bullish and bearish advisors seems to be a a, a, um, a bit more consistent there. Uh, it's been around for a while as well. Um, I know there's lots of other um, port, you know, uh, other sentiment indicators that people look at. But for the most part, we sort of take a big page out of the, the quote from from Santiano that those who fail to remember the past are condemned to repeat it. I like to think that those who study market history are bound to profit from it. Um, and that's what we do. Um, there's a couple of we, we were talking the other day about about the wisdom of the elders. And there's a quote that I've been carrying out. And this is based upon our, our you know, a takeoff of the seasonal work that we do. You know, everyone wants to associate selling me and go away with us. But uh, Yale invented the best and worst six month switching strategy in 1986, which is not a go away situation. It's uh, changing and repositioning your portfolio with respect to the market making most of its gains from November to April and going to October on average in most years. This is a quote. You remember a guy named Edson Gould? Um, contrarian did a newsletter called Findings and Forecasts. Yeah, 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 Jeff, 100%. As a matter of fact, Walter Deemer was talking about Edson last week when we had him in the space. <laughs> oh, Walter's another one. He is uh, somebody I'd like to get to know even better and spend some time uh, chatting about stuff. So, the Gould quote, and you know, the almanac is full of, of, of uh, quotations. I, I curate them. Uh, my father did it, and I'm always looking for suggestions for that and everything in the book. We take a lot of input from readers, as, as you as you do also for your the, the space here. But the quote is, if the market does not rally as it should during bullish seasonal periods, it is a sign that other forces are stronger. And when that seasonal period ends, those forces will really have their say. Well, Best six months got crushed this year, um, really began to uh, uh, bring our worst case scenario. We, we do a newsletter forecast in December, um, just before the Christmas break, uh, for the third, um, the, the triple witching day in, in, in December. And we were also, um, we put out a few scenarios. I'm not calling the exact uh, level of the, of the market, you know, 12 months out, but we do a best case, base case and worst case. Our base case was for things to not be as bad. But as the, the January barometer, which is another thing Yale invented, uh, came in negative and we started seeing things break down, uh, we started leaning towards our, our worst case scenario. Actually, the, the from our July newsletter was worst case scenario in play, no bottom yet. And that was a June 30th date. Um, so the other thing with bear markets uh, you probably don't know Dan Turov, guy we used to do a newsletter with, uh, been around for a long time. And this was a quote about bear markets that he put out uh, back in the in the 2000, you know, uh, bear. That bear markets don't act like a medicine ball rolling down a smooth hill. Instead, they behave like a basketball bouncing down a rock-strewn mountainside. There's lots of movement up and sideways before the bottom is reached. Hey, hey Jeff, Jeff, that's a money quote. Who, who, whose quote was that again? That's awesome. Dan Turoff, good friend of mine. Um, okay. He's out of San Diego. I used to publish his newsletter. Then he, he took it back, you know, took it out on his own. Dan's a real sharp guy. He does a, a market timing system. And that's, you know, these things jump out at me as, as the market does what it does. And, um, you know, we've had a very cautious uh, scenario going forward. I'm going to get into some things I'm looking at and some com comparisons out there. But, you know, we do carry um, a stock and, and EDF portfolio. Couple ETF portfolios, we have a small mid cap 
and large cap stock portfolio, sector rotation, ETFs, and then their tactical switching strategy. And, you know, everyone's wrong a lot. There's a quote from Brett Holtz out there that I'm not going to remember offhand. But basically, you know, most of us are wrong a lot. The, the point is to recognize the error, honor the stop, sell the position and move on. And we watched our portfolios, you know, from February through, you, you know, May, just weed itself out of, of, of positions. A lot of them were stops that were raised up, stuff that were taken out for profit. Some of them were ones that didn't work. But, you know, we've got cash as a position listed in our um, ETF portfolio. And I had an advisor call me the other day asking me to just, he was going to go talk to his investment committee. And before they went out to clients, you know, is that really cash, cash? I'm like, yeah, it's cash. It gives you time to think. <laughs> and Jeff, and Jeff, give me a chance, chance to catch your breath. I'm going to for one second. So I was in a space a couple of weeks ago. I was just listening. I was a listen-only mode. And there was a, it was a space at night. And there were a bunch of these RA guys. I felt sorry for them. And they were talking about the pressure they're under at these major firms to keep the money invested. So if they have too much cash, you can stop all calls saying, hey, what are you doing? Or if you sell something, what are you doing? And I was listening to this. I was like, to me, I, mean, I could just chuckle listening to you talk. That was just such a tell listening to these guys. I mean, it's signs of the times. You know, yeah, as you as you rightly put it, cash as an asset allocation decision. So I, I just had to weigh in. I'm like, go ahead. Go oh, yeah. Ahead, of yeah. course. It's not long term. It's temporary. Um, I mean, getting into the, the cycles and, and, and other, you know, information you were mentioning about soft landing and stuff i mean we look at the gdp now i'm sure everybody does i mean it's pretty much already a foregone conclusion that we are in the typical two two down quarter you know two two quarter no uh, no no jeff 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 you're not watching tv today it's like when you're watching a ball game you know after a careful view of the of the play (laughs) and uh, they went to the referees as caucus new jersey nba no they ruled while the foot might have been on the line it actually doesn't count it may be a technical recession, uh, Jeff, but it's not a real recession. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I actually have it on mute, so all I see is red across the bottom right now. <laughs> um, yeah, they may say so, but uh, you can feel it out there. Um, so we got that going for us. Um, we've got some positive seasonality um, short term here, the turn of the year. We're seeing that 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 fade. You can look at my Twitter feed or the website or blog and you'll see some of these charts of the typical july we've got a uh, analysis we'll see where the month ends if it can hold on to this but hot julys and i'll probably put this out are, are, are um notorious for creating better buying opportunities later in the year so if this you know market stays where it is and, and doesn't give it all back it's it's a recipe for another downdraft um we're also in you know, this this weak spot of the four-year cycle, uh, one of the few cycles that uh, has a particular time frame that I, that I believe in. Um, we're the only country on the planet, or, or at least developed one, that has a regular election um, every four years for the leader of the country and every two years for the representatives. There's no uh, votes of no confidence and, and et cetera and so forth. And this creates this regular pattern where the third year of the cycle – the pre-election year is the strongest. Um, there's been some shifts with election years becoming weaker as you know, mustanging lasts longer and goes further. But this third year is still notoriously the best year of the cycle, uh, up double digits depending on the time frame you look at. 
And what we've found looking at a quarter by quarter basis is something called the weak spot of the four year cycle, which guess what those two quarters are Q2 and Q3 of the midterm election year, what we're sitting, uh, you know, smack dab in the middle of. But this sets up the sweet spot. And this is one of the reasons why I'm not uh, as bearish as some out there for a little bit further out for the, you know, six and 12 months out where you see in the weak spot, the Dow averages a loss of 1.2, S&P 1.5 loss, NASDAQ minus 5%. Yes, we've, you know, over overtaken that by, by a lot. But the sweet spot of the four-year cycle is from Q4 of the midterm year to Q2 of the pre-election year. And, it continue, you know, the pre-election year still does well through the end of the year. And it's a 19.3% gain for the Dow on average, going back to 49 and... 20% for the S&P, and then since 71 for NASDAQ, 29.3%. And this is one of the reasons that my father dubbed the term midterm election years where bottom pickers find paradise. Um, we've been keying on this cycle, and it even matters more that the market is trending in this direction of the cycle. It's sort of the convergence of the four-year election cycle and the seasonal, you know, monthly cycle, the, the best and worst months of the year. And, um, you know, the chart in our outlook, in my outlook in the 22 Almanac was midterm election year seasonal patterns compared to all years, first term midterm years, which presidents seem to get a bit more uh, of a run for their money, and then Democratic president midterm years, and then the second year of new Democratic presidents, which is you know, basically the first midterm year of, 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 a, of a Democratic president. And 2022 is tracking this trend-wise very closely. Um, we've posted this chart. We update it almost monthly. And um, you know, the good news is, is that this move from the midterm low to the pre-election year high on average is about, what, 47% for the Dow going back to 1914 uh, and on NASDAQ, from the midterm low to the pre-election year high, an average gain of 68.2%. And the, the interesting thing to me is that the bulk of these lows occurs in October, and the bulk of the highs occurs in December, and m many of them on the last trading day of the year. So while we sit here and look at the negative, and I don't think we've hit bottom here yet. I I've been saying that, that we're looking at, you know, uh, neither the the end of the of the bear in in uh, time nor level, um, but I sense it's it's coming close, and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a low point um, just ahead of the midterm elections or thereabouts, maybe even next month, September, the two worst months of the year, and then that brings into question the midterm elections, which up until Roe, uh, it was pretty much almost you know, shoe in that the Republicans are going to take back the House and, and possibly and, and more likely even the Senate at that point. Now, the calculus, the political calculus has changed a little bit. But if the Congress flips and everyone's always talking about what party is better for the, the, the market and they're always referring to the, the White House, it's really Congress that matters because they hold the purse strings. So the best combination uh, politically, the best political alignment combination for the stock market has been a Democratic president and a Republican Congress with an average gain of 16.4% and the Dow going back to 1949. It's going to take some maneuvering 
at, at a, a White House, you know, some tacking to the center as um, Bill Clinton did uh, back in, in, in 1994. Um, and then I think, you know, the, the previous time we had some of that work with Ron Reagan in office working with the, the Democrats on, on, the, on the other side, especially Tip O'Neill. And um, it, it remains to be seen if that's going to happen. So some of the other comparisons that we're looking at, um, the 70s and, and, and uh, have been come into play with stagflation out there. Um, we're running a chart looking at 2022 versus 70, 74 and 1962, all midterm election years. And from about April through, you know, mid-May 2022 was on the exact same path as 1970, which we had that May 26 bottom amidst of, you know, Vietnam and protests and, you know, four dead in Ohio and all that stuff. And, you know, all of these, these, these three years have either a test of this early year low um, out in October or even a lower low. Look at 74. I know there's some, some, think out there that we're in a 1973 type situation but we're also in a midterm year and we've got a declared bear market whether you look at the ned davis research rules which i do um or the 20 percent rule no matter how you slice it it's an official bear market so we went back and we took all the official bear markets um as defined by ned davis research which is in the almanac on page 130 something if i can remember you've got one handy uh 133 134 and there's about 19 of them there's a few that we 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 didn't include these these 30 percent reversals in the value line geometric 87 90 98 and and 2020 which were, were you know sort of just uh short event driven bear markets and the math is that you know after you hit that official 13 percent down to 145 days the average um, decline at the bear market end is 25.4%. This is Dow-based, an additional 12% drop. <clears throat> and um, the days that it puts it out are another, you know, six months or so, uh, 139 days. And that puts us at um, October 31st with the projected low on the Dow of 26,732. <clears throat> down 26.4 percent year to date and we have a chart that shows uh 22 dow s p nasdaq with all of those midterm years you know a composite chart so that's kind of where we're thinking in general um i could go on if you want to chime in we can that's great jeff i mean you covered so much ground in a short period of time a lot to dig in there let me throw a few questions at you, and then we'll we'll get some others up here. Um, I see we got Porter in the house, uh, Rokey's in the house, Karpowski's house, Carpathia. Great, great, great lineup as usual. Um, so let's talk about one thing. Many things you said caught my ear. One was, and maybe tease us out a little bit. One was when when the market doesn't do or something doesn't do what it's supposed to do, or at least what historically. Uh, would do suggested by the percentages in the past that that's noteworthy. Could you, it's like when the market's supposed to rally, yeah. and doesn't rally. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Cause I think that's a really interesting insight. It, it is. And I, I've spent a bunch of time talking with others about it. Um, our friend JC, 
Peretz, uh, another CMT guy from All Star Charts. He and I have had discussions about, you know, when when seasonal patterns don't work, they become indicators. Um, and this is something that uh, came out of a conversation that we had. I mean, it's it's, it's basically you're looking at um, something that's, you know, got a, a, a scientific method proof, you know, where it's the null hypothesis has been disproven. And, you know, there's a year where or a time frame where it doesn't happen. So if you're seeing um, a, a consistent uh, manifestation of behavioral finance or human behavior with their money, um, that's, you know, reflecting the stock market, something else is at play. There's another force that is overriding um, the, the, the general pattern of how humans behave. And that's what we were seeing in 08, 09 or 07, 08, 08, 09. Same thing that happened back in uh, 72, 73, 74 and 70, you know, 72, 73, 73, 74, where you had these back to back years of down best six months or the the uh, as I call the buy in October, get yourself sober period instead of the sell in May and go away period. And that's what we were witnessing here in um, April at the end of April in, in 2022. And that's a, a, a red flag and an indication of itself that when seasonality, a consistent seasonality like that doesn't work, something else is going on. Jeff, um, another question of similar uh, ilk. One of the things I notice is increasing misuse of technical analysis and sentiment. Mm-hmm. This, this one of the words that I'm really triggered by is democratization. Whenever I see an ad from Robin Hood or whatever, a democratization of markets, you can do this yourself. Like I tell people, run, not walk as fast as you can away from that. And what you do, what Helene does, what any serious practitioner does, I mean, it, it's, it's not, you don't just get out of ruler and some crayons and memorize Fibonacci 0.68 and we're good to go. I mean, it takes years and years of experience and pattern recognition. And, you know, this you-can-do-it-yourself E-Trade mentality, um, like people just blowing themselves up because they're being led to slaughter by the likes of Jim Cramer and others. And so as you observe in your years and you see how sentiment and technical analysis is increasingly used, or shall I say misused, I, 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 I think it's a real problem for a lot of individual investors. And maybe, maybe I'm being too negative, as is usually the case. But as you look around and, and, and you see how, you know, like the sell side, for instance, there are very few major houses that have technicians um, anymore. The, the flip side of that is you can go in FinTwit and there are all these kids with baseball caps on backwards, you know, for $99 a month with their Discord service. They're telling you how to, you know, blow yourself up in three easy steps without even trying. So maybe maybe it's by dint of some of the questions you get from your readers or just things that you see. But any reflections on on on, on how people are misusing data in, in in studies? It's sort of like you know, remember the old Sims commercials where an educated consumer is our best our, customer. Our best customer. You know, sometimes little knowledge is worse than no knowledge. What would you say about that? Is that the same guy who did the Carvel commercials? <laughs> We're dating ourselves, dude. Go ahead. All right. Um, yeah, I have a I have a recent quotation from uh, 
uh, a CMT, uh, you know, legend, Ralph Acampora. Uh, before I give you that, I mean, it's, it's similar to me to the whole information overload we have in everything. I, I think technical analysis has been used well by uh, a few. Um, I think everybody out there is not making a fortune doing it. Uh, I see some small traders that I know, friends and such, uh, go back and forth and struggling with it. I see some people that have some success with it. So Ralph's quote, which I think grabs this, is analyzing the chart is the easy part. Actually doing what the chart says, that's the tough part. Um, people are emotional beings. Oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. You mean I'm not the only one who sees a chart that's opposite the way I'm supposed to be and then says, no, Jeff, you got it wrong. Turn it upside down. <laughs> it's like it's like the break on a putting green, you know? What? That's going right? I thought it was going left. <clears throat> but, um, you know, there's times where I wish uh, or, or, or and sometimes use a trader or a broker to execute my own analysis to get my own emotions out of the way. My business part for, partner, thankfully, uh, is much less emotional than I. Um, and it, that it, it's a nice fit. But um, I think this there's a lot of hype out there. There's a lot of marketing, whether it be doom and gloomers or you can, you know, be a, a successful trader for just one hour a day. Those are people that are selling information. Granted, I sell information also, but I'm not always telling you to buy or sell something, as we previously uh, mentioned with the cash position. So I think there's there's definitely an issue with overuse and misuse of technical analysis. And then there's the indicator graveyard, which is hard to be, um, you know, the the, um, the mortician on that, it, which is something that, you know, Yale came up with years ago, that we are constantly looking for things that are no longer working or new things that are happening. And, and I mean, I benefited from being around as some things evolved and changed. Um, we, there used to be a, you know, September reverse barometer because there was a, a whole different concept about, about, you know, people getting back in, coming into the market after the summer. And that just fell by the wayside where it was no longer an indication of, uh, of, of of what the market was doing. It probably came around in a bear market uh, period of time when, um, you know, stocks would go down in September and then rally in the fourth quarter. It doesn't work the other way. Um, hey, 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 Jeff, let me interrupt you. You talked about the integrate indicator graveyard. I love that one. Mm-hmm. So, indicator graveyard. So things that I observe in recent months that trigger me, and I think there are a whole bunch of people out there who are bloviating about this indicator and that indicator uh, a lot of noise, but not much information. In other words, the signal noise ratio is incredibly low. So, for instance, you measure you mentioned the put call ratio a minute ago was kind of having yeah. a lot. Okay, I also look at sentiment. Okay, there's so many sentiment. There's so many polls, and one of the things I observe just standing back is people spend so much time worrying. We're trying to measure what other people are saying rather than just doing the work on the, on the company itself. In other words, it's, it's, it's like the, you know, the Keynesian beauty contest. It's not who's the most beautiful girl, but who do, the ju- who do you think the judges will deem to be the most beautiful girl? And mm-hmm. it's, just, it's like 
poles of poles. It's just like it, it's out of control. I've never, and then it's made worse because you had the proliferation of volume uh, in options markets like you've never seen before. And so going back to the put call ratio, the options data, it's like I'm not sure what it's measuring. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, we, we, and, and also, I want Roke to come up here because John, if he can speak, I don't know if he's busy, but. Um, when you think about the, he's made some really insightful comments and, and guy, maybe you can come up here as well or Newman, um, about, you know, in a market where it's, inc- you got increasingly dominated by machines and algos. I remember John telling me years ago, you know, for instance, take right now, take right now. It's a perfect one. I'm going to try to tell my inner John Rook. Yeah, everyone's looking for the capitulatory bottom, the puke, the cathartic, you know, get me out dump. Right. But as John told me years ago, he goes, George. He goes, machines don't get emotional. You know, they're just VWAPing along, okay? And so rather than having the headline grabbing markets down 10 or 15% in a day or two days, and people say, oh, that's the low. For weeks upon weeks upon months upon months, we had no capitulatory low, no cathartic event. But yet you still wind up with a huge down. So it's, you know, it's death, death, death by a thousand cuts. It just grinds people down. So... When you so coming back to the question, I know I'm on a rant here, but mm-hmm. you gave me an opening. Plus, I'm giving you a chance to catch your breath, and maybe I'm triggering you with some of this nonsense. Um, the misuse of surveys, the misuse of options data, the misuse of sentiment data—it's just. And then you know there was another one. <laughs> the other day, I shouted someone down. Not that I ever do that. Someone wanted to talk about volatility. That's another one. Okay. They're going on about the move index and the ratio of the VIX to the move and the move to the VIX. And, you know, I get a headache trying to figure this all out. And I say, oh, yeah, that's what that means. And it's like you get the smartest guys out there who do, who do VIX. There's that guy, Chen. We got to get him back in here. And it's like he's even crying. It's like the guys who specialize in this stuff can't make money out of it. And so it's like a lot of noise. I, I just kind of block it out and ignore it. I just want to come back and focus on price. Forget about trying to measure is Jeff in a good mood or a bad mood? Is Jeff bullish or bearish? Is Jeff next, Jeff's next door neighbor buying options, you know, calls or puts? Just focus on what the damn stock is doing. So I don't know if any part of that triggers you, Jeff. Thoughts, comments, reactions? No, it does. I mean, price is important. That's the, that's the technician in you coming out, George, and I appreciate that. Um, the surveys were always an issue with me. That's why we used to love put call. And we we liked the one or always loved the one that was in Barron's that was the weekly put call. It was sort of a little five day, you know, smoothing, but that has had trouble being calculated properly. So that's not existent. Um, the thing with, with sentiment uh, indicators survey or otherwise, they're not always giving you an indication. It's, it's more at the turn and that's there to, to, to notice that um, it's been harder and harder to see with, with some of the, you know, just, information overload out there in the world and the fact that the options um you know business and and, and volume and markets have changed uh the sentiment indicator that i like the investors intelligence one is the same way it's not taking a survey it's somebody um making a a, a judgment on what newsletter editors and writers and analysts are writing like you know my headline that or what i'm writing about says bear in it even though i'm only bearish for the next three months they're going to put me in the bear camp. Um, Larry McMillan, do you know Larry? I don't. Who is Larry, please? He's the uh, option strategist. He's an uh, old friend, um, a, a, a sort of an elder of mine. 
but um, he's got some great sentiment indicators with some uh, weighted 21-day uh, uh, moving averages built into there. And he does a, a really nice job of, of identifying those turns. Again, not perfect, not 100%. But For listeners again, what's Larry's name? If people want to follow him, Jeff, Larry, what's he's, his name? He's McMillan. And he's Larry, the okay, options Larry. strategist. Options Good strategy. friend of mine. Okay. I'm, I'm, uh, I have a note to call him. we got to meet for dinner one of these days. Uh, no, we'll do that. Because, Jeff, you're talking about sentiment. I just kind of took the view. And I'm not saying to challenge you, but I just said to myself, you know what? And, and again, you got to think about when is it? When is the market not doing what it's supposed to do? I mean, you look at things like positioning. You look at the fact that rates were like the lowest level in recorded history. The profit margins are a million percent extended above trends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you have all these talking heads on FinTwit and mainstream media just talking about sentiment. And I'm like, dude, you're just not getting the picture. So, Jeff, and, and again, when, it's probably more reflection of my shortcomings than anything else. Has sent, I mean, this year, let's let's be real. The Marks had a few rallies here, and I think Thornton came in the room. I love Tommy. He's the only guy I know who's gotten these kind of trend rallies right. But the reality is, the bigger picture, for someone who's not trying to trade these things, it's like the nose of the plane has been pointed down. And if you just say, you know what, I'm going to be messed for the next year. Forget about calling these one, two-week, you know, episodic uh, dead cap bounces. I just want to get the big picture right because, okay, Jeff, I'll take your advice to get long for the next week or two. But then a week or two, you're gonna, I got to take your call again because you're telling me to get back out. It's like, right. no, I just want to know the big picture, right? And so viewed through that lens, not trying to catch the wiggles and jiggles. I mean, like how is sentiment getting away from the weekly stuff? How is sentiment how, measuring sentiment helped at all in the bigger scheme of things? It's just been, it's been misleading. The direction's down. What would you say to that? I would say that if everyone's talking about sentiment, it can't work because it's a contrary indicator. So if everyone's talking about it, it's not working. Um, and I think the trend is down, and it hasn't shown a turn for anyone that's you know experienced looking at sentiment. We've been looking for uh, put call to do something, and it hasn't for a long time before this this bear cycle um so, so i think sentiment indicators have changed uh and are not as indicative as they used to be and we do not rely on them as as much as you know as we could have in the as we were able to in the older days and the only thing that's giving me um any sentiment or psychological indication is this investors intelligence bullish and bearish advisors percent um it's it's something that's that's shown some consistency and there's um you know a knowledgeable experienced person uh uh formulating it um and i agree that the long term right now is on that point jeff and, and thornton's gonna come here in a minute i'm sure could you explain for everyone in the room like why you like investors intelligence better than AAII and how they're different? Because I agree with you completely. Could you just weigh on that a little bit? Elaborate a little bit? It's not really a survey of asking people what they're doing. It's sort of a combination of the what their people are buying or selling. It is taking what, um, you know, services that people spend money on, mine included, and taking what their what their market calls are. And it's it's got a, a, a history um, and it's you know, makes sense as to how it's built. So it's not just one of those AII um, right. you know, and, 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 and survey. Has that, been, has that one been 
guys, sentiment service, has that been helpful or had more utility uh, in, in 2022? It has, but it's also bouncing around and you got to go back and compare it to some of the, you know, not to like 08, 09, as far back as you can go. And you can see that this, the compa- that comparison has been more helpful to me because you can see how it bounced around, was up and down. And it's, you, you, you're not going to pick the bottom on anything. And you're not going to pick the bottom on a sentiment turn. You got to wait till you see the other side a little bit. You got to have a little bit of hindsight. You got to be able to look in the rearview mirror a little bit to see if that was the bottom. And we haven't seen that yet. It's come back up. I mean, the the one the part that I look at is the the um, difference between bulls and bears. So you know, when there's uh, a lot more bears than bulls, you're getting you know to that period where uh, going long is is you know um, the risk is is, is reduced. It, the, the odds are better. And then you look for that turn going from, you know, many more bears than bulls to, you know, not so much to, to, to you know, more bulls right. than bears. And that's when you see a trigger. But it's it, admittedly, it's been more helpful, but not yeah. <clears throat> clearly indicative just yet. Yeah, no, I, I want to bring Tommy Thornton in one second. But last thing before Tommy speaks up in similar fashion, listening to you speak, I, I think uh, sentiment trader Jason. Uh, yeah. Go for service. He's good stuff. And I have an email out to Jason. I hope he'll come in here and talk. He, he takes kind of a low profile. But you know, he has objective data. He, I'm sure you're familiar with his methodology, dumb money, smart money. Okay. And just recently, like last week, that thing got to an extreme, extreme where divergence was, you know, like if history is any guy, which it may not be. And I would argue it's not, but that's a, that's another discussion. <laughs> that, that, that's me moving the goalpost. Okay. But that's where um, we disagree. I, I know, I know, I know. But if you use but the point is that one was saying last week showing, you know, the last few times it, it, it was extreme as this, the market was a buy and it trots out the subsequent returns and blah, blah, blah. Okay. But that thing was useless this entire year. I mean, it didn't, it, it didn't say that it wasn't an extreme buy, but, wasn't saying sell either. And so, you know, if he's like, well, it's kind of okay. It's a little bit negative. You know, and meanwhile, you had a 30% off sale if you didn't, if you didn't sell anything. So anyway, that's awesome. Listen, I want to make it more interesting here. This guy knows much more about this stuff than I do. And he has a license to uh, speak about calling turns because he's done it three times now this year. And I'm sure he's got a good question for you. So Tommy, uh, good to see you. you. Got a question for Jeff, Tommy? Hey, Jeff, uh, I've been a you know, big fan of uh, your work and your father's work uh, for many years. And uh, I, uh, I agree with I just jumped on. So I heard a, a few of your comments, but uh, I do agree that uh, sentiment is um, it's difficult to use as a strictly timing tool. Um, I also am not a giant fan of the AAII uh, sentiment poll because you know, it gives uh, respondents uh, a reason to be a little, well, they don't make a strong commitment. They can say, are you bullish or bearish or are you neutral? And a lot of people would rather just say I'm neutral instead of making a real definitive call. And back when I worked um, at my hedge fund, if I walked up to my head PM and said, look, I'm, he goes, what do you want to do? Well, I'm neutral. Um, you know, that was just a good way for me to get score, you know, some scorn thrown at me. Uh, I, I, um, I also like the investor's intelligence, uh, pull a, a lot. And I, I find that to be of a lot of very good info, uh, throughout that. I mean, because it is really, uh, uh, what a lot of very smart people are saying about the markets and 
in many respects, uh, it, it definitely leans for the most part, part of most time uh, for bulls. Uh, it's easier for people to have a more bullish uh, view. But it's important also when you have periods like this, what we've had for the last six months, to look at it and to understand the environment that we're in uh, when those uh, indicators get to extremes or break through certain levels. I also am a big fan of Jake Bernstein's Daily Sentiment Index. Um, I think it, um, it, it, it's valuable. Uh, but, and, you know, one thing to also remember, and I think you'll agree, is sentiment is a condition. It's not necessarily a trigger. And a lot of people reverse that. And that's where things go wrong. And you can also look, um, especially with the investors intelligence or DSI, you can chart it and you can see uh, the ranges of what happens in bear markets. And much like an RSI, when it's under 50, you're in a bearish environment um, because the majority of people are bearish. And that's generally what I've been seeing and talking to George about and everybody on George's space is that that's the environment we're in. And, you know, it's, it's gotten to a point where things are really, really deep for a lot of different stocks. And we just are now starting to see earnings, uh, mm -hmm. earnings start to get crushed with margins and, and, and the consumer is now in front and center with, um, with a major slowdown. So I think that we still have problems uh, going forward because there's a lot of stocks uh, such as, let's say, Apple, Microsoft, Tesla, um, others that have not really corrected significantly or, or let's just say enough to signal anything worth buying. I flip back and forth between long and short in these environments. You got to be nimble. You got to keep your sizing down. Or patient. And be patient and admit when you're wrong to move on on, on certain things. And um, that, I think, is the bear market tactical trade uh, trading uh, modus operandi for 2022. And I think just since we have all these big mega cap names coming out this week and we have Fed, we could get some really wild swings and we could get a bounce. You know, if the Fed has any sort of dovish tilt well you know oh we're gonna you know my i said yesterday uh to someone you know if they say well it looks like 50 to 25 basis points it it could be seen as wow they're even thinking 25 basis points and that could be seen as dovish for them i you still mean 25 this this week or no 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 i think i think 75 is 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 definitely going to happen I, I thought if, if we were over 4,000 ahead of the meeting, uh, then 100 would come back on. But 75 has been the base case. Mm -hmm. And I think Great. I think they have enough cover to do it at that point. At that point. So anyway, I just want to say um, your work's great. Um, I think the sell in May uh, started in January. Yeah. Hey, 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 Tommy, can I ask you a question? Because you, you, you may not heard the earlier part of the conversation, but maybe just before you stepped in. So, Jeff, you and I are in large agreement on this. I guess the specific question I want to ask you about sentiment. Um, have you, we all grow, you know, markets change. 
um, it's that famous, you know, uh, Loeb quote, just when you've got the, you figure you got the, the, the keys. They change the locks. They change the locks, exactly, okay. So, Tommy, have you, have you rolled with possibly changing the way you use sentiment or what indicators uh, you use or don't use? Because Jeff was talking about the graveyard of sentiment, the graveyard for indicators. So, like, what changes have you made in terms of how you use sentiment or, or what, or, or what sentiment indicators you look at? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think it's just from experience. I've used the, when, again, when sentiment gets to low levels, uh, I'm, I recognize that it can stay uh, at these types of levels for a while. And I, I try to use other timing indicators um, such as, uh, I mean, I use a lot of DeMarc indicators and, that has been very good. I use waves as well. I use the DeMarc wave counts and those have been very, very good. Uh, and that actually tells you what, not necessarily like people get lost on Elliott wave stuff with Fibonacci levels and that whole thing. But I think it's important to understand the personalities of the waves of what's happening. And, you know, the first wave down is where people think it's just a buy the dip. And that's why we had stronger rallies early in the beginning of this whole episode. And then uh, the rallies have gotten weaker because you've lost a lot of the by the dip people. So my thought, another thing that, that I, I also look at, like let's just say percentage of stocks above the 20, 50, you know, 200 day moving average. Those have also been in fair market uh, patterns as well. And you'll get, you know, short term spikes higher like, for example, I look at the percentage of stocks above the 50-day moving average on the S&P, and that bounced up back to levels that we saw at previous peaks or uh, uh, short-term peaks uh, this year. So I kind of watch where other things, you know, for, you know, at, at other times and, and places of uh, levels, basically, on the, on the internals. Um, what else am I focused on right now? Yeah, t t t Tommy, I know yeah. uh, you can't be with us too long, and, and I don't want you to give away stuff. By the way, I, I you know I read I read Jeff stuff, I read Tommy's stuff. This is all great stuff, unbelievable, unbelievable value proposition. But uh, Tommy, just because top of mind, Tommy secrets away. A couple of uh, you know high profile names. We saw you know Tesla come out with those those absurd earnings statement last week. It was really absurd. It was not the earnings, but the reaction to it. To me, the stock looks like a great short right here. And then also Apple, we're waiting, and there's been enough warnings. I know you've been writing about that, and the consumer stocks. So just real quickly, if you could touch on Tesla, the consumer stocks, and Apple, just, you know, quick hits. Well, I um, so I, I covered uh, half my Tesla short. I, I only maximized my position size at 5%, so I covered half my Tesla before the earnings at a, you know, little profit. And then uh, I added back... Uh, after the reaction, like a day after the reaction and uh, higher. And so I'm back in the money again. Yay. Um, but I will say as far as some sentiment, uh, one of the things that I just anecdotal, uh, people are um, really, really um, still very, very bullish on Tesla. And I, I was in Los Angeles and I rented a Tesla Model 3. And I, I'm a car guy. I put out my thoughts on the car and I, I, I got a bazillion 
people that commented and uh, the Tesla loyalists are still very, very loyal uh, to Tesla. And they, they, once that breaks, um, then, then you're going to see this, this really, you know, fall apart. I think Elon, just a couple things. I think Elon Musk is more at risk of losing his job. <laughs> more time uh now than than ever uh that's i think a, a a real risk for him and that is a problem um mike green said something in the spaces recently um uh, that it really doesn't matter with tesla because there's no sellers the big holders are elon uh the big mutual funds that are passive they're not, not going to sell and i I wanted to comment, but I couldn't at the time, but Larry Ellison just resigned from the board and he's got 15 million shares uh, of stock that if Larry decides to unload, uh, remember Elon, you know, moved the stock down 20% when he sold a million shares. So 15 million shares, I think would be some significant supply hitting the stock. Uh, of course, the stock went up after earnings. They barely met earnings. And, you know, they met lowered guidance, um, which was manipulated by the IR there. So it's it's essentially um, we'll wait for another, you know, shoe to drop with Tesla. But I, I think it's you're you're right. I think it's a it's a very uh, appealing short right here. And you can use basically, um, you know, I I use very wide stops on this and I would use perhaps the high uh, as a stop if you want to have a little bit in there uh it's the hardest stock i've ever traded i've made money shorting it by just trading it and i've lost a few a few times on it i'm not one of those that just you know shorts it and puts it away because you just can't with this thing so i think that that's a problem as far as consumer stocks uh, i think amazon is at risk uh, I, I shorted that last week just a little um, i think you have uh, this walmart news is very very significant um for so many different reasons i'm short dollar general i think that's uh at risk as well and um i'm i also can say i'm short i shorted mcdonald's yesterday whirlpool and uh what else did i do and 3m I, so i really <laughs> i do lose money sometimes um so i'm wrong uh, as on those right now, but uh, overall, I'm net short again, and um, um, I, I think that we're at risk if these Apples and Microsofts, which I'm short both of those, if those turn out to do a Walmart dive, uh, I don't think people are are prepared for that. It, they're crowded, very very crowded stocks. I appreciate that, Tommy. That's great. Hey, J hey Jeff. Um yes, sir. Could you talk a little, I don't know if you look at it much, but how do you think about uh, flows? Um, I, I, I'm big on flows, and one of the mysteries to me has been that, you know, retails uh, retails actually put money into the market this year, or whatever, it's a de minimis compared to the, you know, the, I can't remember, I took, put a little in, took a little, it doesn't really matter. The point is they haven't sold anything really, I mean, relative to the trillion plus they put in last year. I mean, kind of what strikes me is, you know, I always talk about, um, There'll be a period of time where people just don't even open up their statements. They're kind of they, they either aren't aware of how much they're losing because they see the soundbite averages, or they don't want to look. But 
as the old line goes, you know, denial is not the name of a river in Egypt. And at a certain point, you know, they, they look and shock and awe and horrors. And we're coming up into the deeper into the third quarter here in September, October. You know, seasonally is not a good place. We got earnings falling apart, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think, do you, do you ever look at flows, Jeff, specifically, um, and trying to get on the right side of flows? And do you think that flows potentially present a really big risk to the market right now? I don't track that, you know, uh, as a, you know, market analysis tool. It's something we track on the Almanac on a seasonal basis. Um, I think that the people haven't opened these statements so much. Uh, I, I don't think we've seen that shoe drop yet. And that's probably why the flows have not been so negative. They're, they haven't increased. But I suspect that um, there will be some outflows as we get into the seasonal period, um, the negative seasonal period. So there's a there's a section in the back of the book about cash inflows into the market on a you know seasonal basis. People tend to pay their their bills and 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 make transactions at the beginnings and ends of months when things are due. And this was one of the things you know, that, that that Yale discovered when I was sitting next to him, or at least working with him, back in the in the '90s. Was there used to be the Last day of the month and the first for the new month were the um, was the monthly bulge, the monthly five day bulge where most of the market's gains were made, you know, and the rest of the month you could have just gone fishing. Um, and then we noticed and this was one of the calculations that I tracked by hand with my little ruler and the, and the graph paper and adding machine and the red pen. Um, <clears throat> we noticed this mid month spike that began to appear. And, you know, we look for correlation. Admittedly, not everything you see seasonally is, 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 or cyclically is easy to correlate. But this um, correlated quite well with the um, payroll deductions, the biweekly or, you know, uh, or bimonthly or, or, or twice a week um, payrolls going directly into the market in everyone's, you know, whether IRA, 401ks or whatever. And that was driven by flows because the fund managers, unlike you and I, George, can't hold cash um and and i think tommy missed that earlier on that we we had that little cash discussion so cash flows are important and that's something that um while we look for sentiment indicators um that are working that's something to definitely be considered we look at internals you know we've we've seen psychology continue to you know bears continue to ride the market lower you can see it in the um advanced advanced declines the new highs and new lows. We had, you know, multiple, was it like 30 some odd weeks of uh, more new lows and highs across all, all the indexes. So, um, I mean, the flows, I don't think have uh, shown up just like I don't think that um, the inflation has really hit uh, fully the consumer and the economy. And we're starting to see that happen now. Um, <clears throat> but it hasn't really rolled that into the economy. And I think we're going to see some flows dry up as we get into August and September and that, that seasonal period. That's, that's terrific. Negative that's terrific. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, I'd like to just reset the room here. We've got Jeff Hirsch of Stock Traders Almanac. Um, real tour de force here. So many, it's, it's fascinating. Just so many things going on in the market. And Jeff is doing a terrific job covering the waterfront here. Tom Thornton, a longtime friend of the room as well. And I'd like to bring in uh, Neely, who is uh, forgotten more about consumer stocks than any of us will know. And uh, I'm sure Neely, inquiring minds, would like to know. We'll get the Walmart news 
and other sort of disasters. I'm I'm sure uh, everyone was breathlessly. I, I actually, you know, what was the most interesting news to me yesterday before Walmart was um, these barbecue companies like this Weber Grill thing. All right, like this thing has been a, a POS. That's not the ticker symbol. If people want to look at a POS, look it up in the Urban Dictionary. This has been a sink or not a floater from the beginning. And it's like, is no one on the face of the planet who might buy a grill who hasn't bought a grill? And this thing, they brought it public. Their timing could not have been better. They loaded the thing up with a ton of debt right at the top of the work from home, you know, thing. And it's been a one-way trade down. And it blew up again, I think, yesterday. Uh, but this is just emblematic of what's going on. And so, of course, yesterday after the close, uh, we had the Walmart news. So, Neely, um, update us a little bit what you see going on in the in the, in the consumer sector. And I, I just, you know, I'm sorry sorry to be as, and for those of you that weren't old enough to know, uh, Spiro Agnew was um, the vice president under Richard Nixon. God, was a fucking asshole. But um, he went after somebody, I can't remember what it is, he accused someone of being a nattering nabob of negativism. Well, I am a nattering nabob of negativism when it comes to consumer stocks. So, Neely, am I being too unfair? The floor is yours, Neely. Uh, I heard that CEO got grilled. He got raked over the coals. He was under <laughs> fire. I don't know. You can take the grill out of the sell side. You can't take sell side out of the girl. Uh, I would have had a heyday with those titles. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah, well in, well in. You know, it's stories like that that you're like, how is this even a standalone company? I mean, th- like, this is something that, like, a, a Jardin should own, you know what I mean? Or something under a conglomerate. But, you know, bravo to the bankers. They figured it out. and They timed it well. Uh, they don't always get to do those things. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, at a high level, we, you know, we've been very concerned about uh, inflation and how it affects different demographics differently for quite some time um you know we we actually i think you know this george we were on the sell side for 20 years and six years ago we decided to pivot and start our own advisory business we now advise ceos and boards on the interior side of non-disclosure agreements and help them navigate exactly this type of news so you know obviously we can't speak to specific client conversations but um, by nature of our job, we've been talking about this with our corporate clients going back to last summer, literally a year ago, and helping them navigate and make some decisions internally. Um, you know, I, I think from here on out, the things that we're kind of looking at, and it might be a little bit too myopic, maybe here in the near term, but I feel like a little bit of nuance is required, is we're going to have these kind of mixed signals. You're going to have the the mini state stimmies, right? As it were, we have 49 out of 50 states in surplus. They're going to redeploy it because it's midterm season elections and they're going to try to redeploy these surpluses instead of actually reinvesting in the municipalities to their people for votes. Um, You know, that's going to be um, this kind of short-term boon basically to consumer spending in, in micro targets. But then you have other issues around the corner, like uh, the potential for, although this came under question in the last 24 hours, but the potential for student loan forbearance, you know, finally coming to the end after being kicked down the curb for six times going on seven now, potentially. So we're, we're watching for those um, nuances here on the consumer's capacity to spend. But at a very high level, when a Walmart misses... Okay, when a Walmart misses, I cannot stress this enough, having covered the consumer sector for 20 years, 
when Walmart misses, it's a big problem. They're the largest single employer of people in the private sector in the United States of, of America. Um, and, you know, basically they told you they're going to be down 10 to 12% on their earnings because people had to choose between clothes or food. Like that is a problem, people. Um, that is a very significant problem. So while while I hear you on the negativity, perhaps I'm just being negative Neely. So hopefully that helps you, George. Negative Neely. I like that. Ooh, negative Neely, double N, cool. So Neely, um, let me just play devil's advocate. Um, when you look at the composition of what's going on inside Walmart, and again, we're gonna we'll, we'll keep it at a higher level, so we don't get into stock specific ideas. But when you talk about, it, it's really horrible when you think about it such a large portion of the population having to choose between what they need versus what they want. I mean, I just think about not just grills, but, you know, apparel, um, going out to eat. I mean, there was, I, I know I put a graph up a couple of weeks ago. It showed, I think sequentially month to month, like spending on travel or restaurants is actually down. Like that's not supposed to happen. So the whole discretionary part of, Consumer spending, travel, eating out, apparel, all the types of services. Like, to my way of thinking, in the 40 years I've been doing this, I've never seen it this bad. What would you say? Well, I mean, have we... I, I miss precedented times, right? I mean, that's the joke. Um, I think we're still very much in these unprecedented times. It wasn't normal to hand over $2.1 trillion of direct stimulus payments and programs. You know, It wasn't normal to fire 24 million people and have immediately, by the way, during the summer of 2020. Most people forget this. This is actually one of the most um, enlightening conversations to guide boards through right now is think about this. You had 24 million people that were instantly fired April of 2020. And more than 75% of them, I mean, we've done the math, okay? We've published this, we've done the math. More than 75% of them on that day of being fired were annualizing 30 to 50% more in their annual income because of the federal pandemic unemployment compensation of $600 a week, in addition to the state's benefits, in addition to the direct stimulus payments. I mean, we, we've had a massive fracturing of trust in the workforce um, and, you know, allowing people to wear jeans on Fridays is not going to cut it on the other side of this. So uh, there's a lot that we think about beyond just the consumer's capacity to spend. We also think about the consumer's willingness to spend. And one conversation that just does not get talked about enough was the fracturing of trust, fracturing the trust in public health, fracturing a trust with employment, fracturing of trust, um, you know, with efficacies. I mean, like people are just, and people don't spend when they're angry or afraid, you know what I mean? So I'm just waiting for that tipping point just a little bit um, on what that might be. And going back to the point though, the spending hangover, I mean, I, I definitely get some pushback. People are like, oh, you know, travel spending's up significantly miles. And, you know, we all see the pictures of the luggage issues and, 
like all true all true all true also for uh backward looking not forward looking you're gonna have one heck of a visa bill hit on the other side of summer vacations right at a time when back to school goes into effect right at a time right and right at a time when you have overage of inventory where people are going to be able to be choosy and to your point clothing carries that higher margin goods which is exactly what walmart has the issue with so i'm gonna gonna make a a confession here i really shouldn't do this but it's such a funny story people gonna want to hear this i'm never gonna i'm never gonna live this down so i live in uh, westchester um county just outside new york city and um it was I was supposed to go to uh, see the Yankees play the Orioles in Baltimore on uh, Saturday night. And I was all pumped. But then as a, as a game day drew close, the forecast for, you know, 6 p.m. when I have to walk over to the stadium was 95 degrees. It's like, Neil, if I said to you, hey, let's go to a baseball game, it's 95 degrees out. Like, I don't think most people would go for that. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. So the trip was planned to go to Baltimore, see the game, decided on the way down, maybe we go to the beach, whatever. And so we went down to Cape May, New Jersey, which by the way, if none of you have been there, it's just an awesome, awesome place. It is just gorgeous. And it's a really chill vibe. So what happened was Carpathia, I know you're ex Philly guy. So um, I go down to, to Cape May. I managed by luck. I was up at 5am on uh, Friday, managed to grab a hotel room at, like I'm not going to even say what the price was. I didn't really care at that point. It's just if if I put this in public, people would say like you paid how much for them in Cape May, New Jersey? But I got a better one for you. So I go down to Cape May, decide to change my plans, bag Baltimore. Now I need a hotel room for Saturday night. Imagine this, Neely. I'm in Cape May, New Jersey. I don't have a room. I need a room for that night. I go on uh, kayak. TripAdvisor, Airbnb, the whole deal. The entire Jersey coast. There's like nothing because the whole state of New Jersey's moved to the beach. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to like delete this part of the recording. I, and, and if you know anybody who, if you've ever been to Wildwood, New Jersey, or if you know anybody who's been to Wildwood, New Jersey, I apologize. But this was like, for those of you who remember Dante's Inferno, I think he forgot the 11th circle of hell. It's called Wildwood, New Jersey. And I knew this going in. But desperate people do desperate things. So I grabbed a room. Neely, I swear to God. This is like one of these no-tell motel places, which back in the day, you know, would charge by the hour. Maybe if you stayed overnight, it'd be $59. All right, just for inflation, maybe 119 on a good day. I mean, nearly. We're talking multiples of that. And as long as the bed bugs were like not too large, I was going to stay there because I needed a place to stay because I was going to go back to Cape May the next day. Nearly, I could not believe, and actually, aside from trying to be funny, which maybe this is not, there's actually a serious question coming here. I've seen this term used on the FinTwit. Maybe you originated, I don't know, it's not used that widely, but I thought it was a pretty cool term called greedflation. Not greenflation, greedflation. And, you know, companies charging, gouging because they can. And we've had Jackson here talking a lot about, you know, at Starwood, the jack rates like crazy. But the and Jackson, you got to come back up here. I see you're down there. You're hiding in the third row about how the top line didn't flow through to the bottom line because costs went through the roof. 
But when you start thinking about, and, and, and Neely, I'm sure you have thoughts about this at a high level. When you look at like concentration in industries and Gini coefficients and this and that and companies' ability to jack prices, I mean, if they're really extracting monopoly profits, I guess you expect to see it in higher profits. But in many, in a lot of cases, you're not. So I think what Jackson's been talking a lot about cost pressures coming through just eats away the 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 the, 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 the extra profits you get from raising prices. But the the general question I really have here, nearly for you, is this concept of greedflation of gouging. Um, how you know, how widespread is it? In many cases, are companies actually able to show higher profits or the cost pressure is just so enormous? It's not, it hasn't been the case. And then beyond that, do we expect prices to come down? And maybe not in every industry. I mean, I totally get it. Airline fares will go down. Hotel prices will go down. But I don't know that Kellogg's is going to reduce the price of the cornflakes. So maybe just talk. And, and this is really very relevant because I get people talk about inflation. They say, well, you know, it peaked in June and blah, blah, blah. Okay, it's fine. But if you're if you drew drew the short straw and you're the lower end of the socioeconomic strata, you know does it really matter that the box of the cornflakes is now annualized at five dollars? Okay, great. So month on month, sequentially, it's not going up, but it's still up a million percent from where it was a year ago. So I don't know, Lily. Neil, there's a lot to unpack there. So I don't know what part that you want to address, but there's a lot of moving parts here. In in in, I don't know the answer, but I certainly know the question. I, I don't think the market's figured this whole thing out yet. So. Neely, deal with whatever part of that you wish. Okay, that was a great story, number one. Uh, you know, I yeah. At that point, I think I would have just been like, fire up the private helicopter and get me home. Uh, anyway, but uh, I would just say the the thing um, I was, I'm contemplating, I don't have answers, but the thing that I wonder, you know, on like a Friday afternoon as I ponder the wonders of the economy, which is true is it's not and it's not about an absolute number it's how it feels to people for how long that will shape consumption behavior and we just don't really have too much of an example of that i mean i do track do have a database a cpi data that can take you back to 1913 and we can run all sorts of numbers if you want um but, you know, we still haven't seen Shelter come through on that CPI print. If Shelter does what it's done historically and transfers through to a year later, it's delayed by, you know, about a year or so, um, you know, that could be in and of itself 660 or so basis points of CPI, <laughs> just at a 20% sort of growth rate in, in housing prices, if they're honest about it, right? So... I'm more concerned about not whether or not we're going from nine one to nine, right? Or nine one to eight. Are we going to be at six for six years? Like that's the sort of thing I think about when we do um, math exercises. Nearly a hundred percent. Keep right? going. You, yeah. You that. Keep going, Neil. You got it. Yeah. I mean, so that's actually what I'm more thinking about. Um, and where is, where is small business in all of this too? I mean, we've got, I think the statistic that flows out there, um, I haven't personally verified this, but it's like there's 12 million businesses owned, basically small businesses owned by um, uh, by baby boomers, right? And we can see, because this is verifiable, I can throw this in the nest in a bit, but you can see that retirements are spiking again. They're kind of resuming what they were doing pre-pandemic. 
And, you know, their kids probably don't want their businesses. And so, you know, that could be like an awesome opportunity if you want to make your own little Berkshire Hathaway, you know, and buy a bunch of local businesses and try to help them figure this all out. But, you know, it's, um, I'm, I'm really concerned about these business exits too, uh, because we're done. You yeah. know this, yeah, right? Neil, let, me, let me ask you a question related to that. So I was reading something yesterday, it comes on Twitter where it was, it was talking about the quit, or I'm sure you know the answer to this. So good to have you in these rooms. You got you got to keep coming back. This is awesome. So annoying question, but you're the type of person that knows the answer to this. So it's talking about the quit rate for employees. It was like 25% or some number like that. And then it started going to all the reasons why. I'm sure you saw the article. It's like, you know, 40% said they weren't getting paid enough money. 30% said something else. Blah, 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 blah. But from where you sit, why has the quit rate been so high? Like, what would you say to that? It's boomers. I mean, it's un- the two things that we've been dissecting. Uh, largely, it's boomers. I mean, yeah, there's some other turnover and things like that, too. I'm not trying to dismiss that. But, like, the sheer number of boomers. We have, like, 70 million people age 62 and older. It was, like, 44 million people 20 years ago. Okay, I mean, like, it's just the numbers of boomers. Um, so, yes, they're working longer rate, right? And they're also exiting numbers, right? Like both can be true, right? And numbers. And, uh, and it's verified, of course, in the treasury data, but you can see social security benefit payouts. And uh, again, I'll post the stuff in the nest when I get a second, but the, it's the boomers that are exiting. Now here's, what's really just whack. Everyone will point to labor force participation, right? As being like, oh, we peaked in 2000 and, you know, we've got to get people working again. If you look at labor force participation by age demographic, the primary contributor to why we are under participating in labor, to state it back that way exactly, is in the 16 to 19 year old category. Like we fundamentally have changed the value of what it is to flip a burger at the age of 16 today versus back in 2000. And that actually kind of bums me out, to be honest. Wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. That's a very important point. You're saying the biggest decline, the the, the biggest decline contribution to the decline in participation rate is from this is in the 16 to 19 category. Is that what you said? Yeah, I've got I've got a tweet. I'll put in the list. So people don't want to flip burgers anymore. So you got that, and then you have what? A lot of the boomers just saying, "I got enough of a nest egg. I'm done. I don't need this headache anymore." Yes, and here's 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 the good news. Negative Neely will give you one awesome good news. We've been saying, and people have been laughing at us, okay, but we've been saying all year, 2022 is going to be the year of attentional baby making. We're going to see birth rates positive again. Most people don't realize, if you look at the provisional data of the CDC, you can look at 2021's birth rates. We exited December 2021 with birth rates up 6% that month. We have not six percent in 20 years people bought homes they upgraded their jobs they bought cars they got married they are having babies and you know what i think's happening is grandma's going you know what now 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 i know what i want to do with my time and i'm going to help my daughter out i'm going to help my son out i'm actually you know because during the pandemic we got in our covid bubbles right we changed how we interacted with our family and our small little tribes and, and trust was rebuilt. I told you about the fracturing of trust. Trust was rebuilt in these micro tribes. And these micro tribes include grandparents. 
And I think that that is beautiful. So I'm really super pumped about the long haul of where we are from a labor force participation, labor force, you know, quality. I'm not all doom and gloom. I think it's gonna be a little doomy before we get there and a little gloomy, but I'm really positive about this wave of babies coming to the United States of America and what that's going to mean. Wow. Hey, Jeff, you've had your hand up for a while. Jeff, over to you. Sorry, guys. Um, no, some great stuff there, Neely, and, and also what we had from, from Tommy before that. Um, I have to jump in a little bit, and I just – I really could be here for hours w- w- with with this conversation, but I've got to get back to proofing and putting the uh, 2023 Stock Traders Almanac to bed so we can get that off the press for everybody in um, late September, October. But, you know, I don't know if you wanted any, any final thoughts or if I should just uh, – Say goodbye, and we'll we'll pick up on other stuff in the future. But you know, so, so J- J- Jeff, it's been terrific having you. I hope you'll come back, and I hope you'll become an honorary elf as we discussed. I guess just for those who weren't in the room for the last hour and a half, just sort and aren't going to trade this thing, you know, week to week, and they're going to say, "Oh, I heard the smart guy Jeff Hershon, you know, Mister Stock Trader Almanac, blah blah blah." What are like the one or two key takeaways you give them? Say, you know between now and the end of the year or, or what are your highest self convictions about anything? I mean, just to, yeah, you know, they say, oh, the guy, they, they, they say, the guy's had it. So what did he say? Like, wh- what do you want him to say? What should they take away from this conversation, Jeff? I mean, cash is our position, our main position right now. It's, it's okay to be in cash. It gives you time to think we are bears right now. We're not as long-term bears as, as you are, George. We're looking for, um, the market to continue tracking the four-year cycle to a midterm bottom and also the seasonal cycle, which will put us at a low sometime in the August to October time frame. Could be a very typical October bottom. And then we see a rally upwards, another cyclical bull going forward. But right now, it's sit tight, be patient. A couple of sectors we like. One for the long haul is biotech. I own XBI myself. A couple of seasonal uh, sector trades on the short side is um, transports and industrials, IYT, XLI. You can go to stocktradersalmanac.com and, and look at the particular levels. We're either shorting uh, at resistance um, above where we are or breaking through support. And, you know, the, other than the cash as a position and waiting for the uh, t- to pounce on that midterm bottom, those are the three sectors we're looking at right now. On the stock side, as I said early on, we've been stopped out of most everything. Um, the stocks that we look at, we use a, a, a fundamental screen with a seasonal overlay and technical analysis, and we're going to wait till we get that fat pitch in the fall, the seasonal and four-year cycle pitch to, to go through and, and uh, do some fundamental screens and, and technical stock picking. Uh, and, and up until then, we're just being patient, enjoying the summer. Jeff, that's fantastic. I hope you come back. It's been awesome. Most definitely will. Yeah, Jeff is a must-follow at Almanac Trader. Um, great service. Jeff, uh, we'll grab a beer one of these days. We still got to catch up with Guy Ed. Uh, yep. Have a good one, Jeff. Great talking. We're going to keep talking here for a little bit, so that's awesome. Thanks, Thanks again, care. George. Be well, everybody. My pleasure. Hey, hey, Newman, if you could you come up, Newman, if you're there? I got a question for you. Uh, I don't want to ask. <laughs> If you, if you can if you can shake free for a second, Mark, that'd be that'd be awesome. Um, so Neely, um, so you're talking about this this baby thing, like so. so whereas 
Uh, it's interesting because that runs flies in the face. I'm actually very surprised. Happily, flies in the face of stuff I've heard recently, where people are talking about declining uh, fertility rates and whatever, and particularly particularly in Europe. Um, and so that's really good news um, because when you look at growth rates, you know, population growth is obviously um, a key factor. But you mentioned births up six percent in December year on year. Like that's a huge number, isn't it? It is. I'm trying to find where I tweeted this, or maybe I didn't tweet it and I thought I tweeted it, but now I will tweet it. So um, just give me a few seconds and I'll, I'll post it. No worries. It. But no it's, worries. it's what, what? you know, and here's the deal. I don't, you know, I am unabashedly in service to the U.S. consumer. We get, we get calls occasionally to do keynote speaking for, you know, global stages. And I'm like, if you want to talk about the consumer I'm in, but like, do not ask me to give, give that same level of care, you know, to any other economy. There's only so much the girl can do. So <laughs> I, I have no clue, but I do know that we are unique um, with having, you know, if you think about uh, the shape of our population curve being like a bimodal distribution here in the United right. States, right? Like we're unique that way. Japan doesn't have that. Europe doesn't have that. You know, like we, we have this kind of two humped camel, right. Of population, um, and, and, you know, going back to, you can Google this, you can Google articles where people are like, millennials will never want to own anything and they'll never like move out and da, da, da. It, they've been buying homes since the end of 2016. They have been, I mean, I've, I've got this great chart that I have that we put in some of our decks for our clients around. Um, you can just look at uh, Signet's jewelry sales. They, 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 they publish their bridal sets. Like it was up more than 40% in 2021. That's by the way, engagement jewelry, which means weddings are 2022, which means babies are still to come. So, you know, there's all sorts of fingerprints of um, life stage, not age dictates birth rates. And we're seeing that finally kick in. It's definitely been later, right? Than generations before, but I think it's really cool. And 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 I'm, I'm here for it. That's awesome. So, Newman, you got to get up here. Uh, so, for those of you, <laughs> I'm sorry. So, there's a stock. Um, well, I'm going the Wayback Machine here. <laughs> so, you think U.S. investors are the only ones who follow narratives? Uh-uh. It's true everywhere. And uh, in Japan, <laughs> there's a... Um, there's a company called Okamoto Industries, ticker symbol 5122. It is one of the world's largest producers of condoms. Uh, the stock closed at 4,000 yen. Um, it's trading around book. It looks like it's around 12 times earnings. So I don't know. I was wondering if Newman could provide some research. But anyway, so, sorry. Sorry. I just couldn't resist that one. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, Jordan, you've been patiently waiting. Jordan, you have a question? Welcome, Jordan. Uh, thank you for this. So not a question. I just wanted to jump on Neely's point. Um, so just to give you a quick little antidote as far as some background goes. So I work in audit and my wife quit her job this year to start a greenhouse. So she's left the workforce. Uh, my brother, who's also in the millennial, had triplets this year. His wife was an accountant. She quit her job. And my mother, who is a teacher and in her final years of, of teaching decided to call it quits early and do nothing but take care of the three new babies that are here. Uh, 
just throwing that out there, I think the labor force partition, partition, I can't speak, participation rate is somewhat skewed by what we believe are normal trends that are happening. I, I think those trends are going counter. I think we're starting to see the single family income pop back up. And I think people are up. They've been home for two years with COVID. I think people are starting to believe that they like being home. And I think that is changing the narrative. And my opinion, not a stock guy. I'm just telling you what I see on the ground. That's all. Thanks. Appreciate that a lot, Jordan. That, that's great. By the way, Neely, one question I want to ask before we go to Newman, and we got Jeff Garbaz in the house too. That's great. Uh, before we go to, 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 to Newman and then Jeff, Neely, um, if the labor talk much labor participation rate stays down, and you have the sort of misguided policy come out of Washington, where they you know they look at the number of people employed compared to what it was pre-pandemic, and they say, oh, there's still all these people that we got to get back to work. But then you juxtapose that with the record number of job openings. It kind of makes me think that and you were talking about um, here i'm sorry i'm going all over the place i'm scatterbrained but you were talking before about inflation you know the rent thing flowing through with you know being six and staying six for years to come well labor is one of the key determinants of inflation and more importantly corporate profitability you look at productivity you look at you know labor costs and if policymakers continue want to run the economy or in the side of hot leaving inflation aside for a second just rolling forward if you say to yourself there's not going to be as much surplus labor or slacker labor force as there was historically because the participation rate not only has gone down but it's going to stay down and miss shedlock for those you don't read his stuff he had a great blog it was the other week i think i put it in my feed miss shedlock was a great piece he was talking about a long but shallow recession and the basic idea was companies are not going to really shed labor like they normally do or have in past cycles because they've had such a hard time in attracting and retaining labor that they're going to hoard labor. And shedding labor is one of the levers that companies historically use to uh, you know, increase profit margins. And so that in order to kill inflation, if the idea is we need to free up resources, be it energy, be it labor. We can't really control oil, but we can't control labor. That we need a recession. We need people to lose their jobs to create enough slack to bring prices down. And if companies relative to the past cycles are likely to shed less labor for the reasons I just alluded to, it would suggest that, yes, maybe the recession won't be that deep, but if you get to profit margins, I think it's a real problem. So a lot of questions to unpack there, Neely, but go back to the first question I, I asked in this thread, which is if, in fact, it's been a structural change in the participation rate, like relative history rhymes, it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, might the policymakers be making a really big mistake here because they're just – you know, what's the point of growing the economy more from here? It's just going to overheat. I mean, through classical Austrian lens, we are, we're overheating. We run out of labor, ran out of oil. We've overheated. We need a recession. So what would you say to that, Neely? Any part of that? You know, on those Friday afternoons, I'd say that's some of the 
the math I run in my head is like, oh, what if we're actually 2% unemployment, right? On a real basis, like, what does that actually mean? Because of these dynamics, right, of available labor or willing labor. Um, you know, I don't know, but I would imagine that we're going to have um, just this wider, widespread kind of reckoning around task automations, right? I mean, no CEO is going to feel good for putting out a, a, a press release that says, you know what, we can't actually fill the roles that we want with the people that we need at a rate in which we can afford. So what we're going to do is rethink all of our task flows and cut the fluff out that way. Like no one's putting out that press release, but people are absolutely having those conversations you get the um, manifestation of that, of course, uh, vis-a-vis the kiosks, the ordering kiosks, right, at um, fast food, right, is kind of, I think, the, the poster child for that. But I think even in our own business of what we're, we do at Distill, I mean, we have millions of economic data points. And because I'm such a, you know, Luddite, I've basically, for most of my career, I just know how to quickly download the Excel files that I need, you know, and I'm an Excel guru, right? So it's like I can flip stuff around and just do it. You know, we hired this young kid who's still in college who knows Python programming better than anything, right? And he like, we we pay, we retain him and he's automated all of our, you know, through all the government APIs. So we literally instantly sweep across, you know, six different agency data sets three times a day to make sure we've got the most up-to-date data, right? Best money I have ever spent, Okay, is on that task flow. If I'm figuring that out, right, as a as you know, co-founder, consultant of a business, paying out of her own pocket, right? I would imagine corporate budgets are gonna go down this path too. So do we need all the meetings that we need? Are there things that we can solve with emails and programs? Yes, 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 right. Um, I think we'll just end up having kind of task automations and those job openings will go away. Interesting. All right, let's go to Mark Newman, then Jeff Garbaz, then Trent Wizzo. Hey, Mark. Mark, please unmute yourself. Hey, George, how are you? How's it going, everyone? Um, a bit jammed, but uh, I figured after the second, uh, after George called me out on the Okamoto rubber story, I had to get on on the on the on the on the space. Um, by the way, interestingly, I looked at that Okamoto as you mentioned it, George. It's dirt cheap. They just announced a buyback, I think, and it's it, it's really interesting. <laughs> But, but there's, but you know, but there they produce rubber. I mean, that's a that's got to be a petroleum-based product that is probably going to be under issue. So, but anyway, so, so Newman, are you saying there's going to be a margin squeeze here? Uh, we could go. <laughs> we, look, I can't. I, I can't. I they can't, can't raise. Look, they look, can't get. They can't raise prices fast enough. Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, the thing is, I just looked and uh, on the. Um, on the on the daily on the daily chart it did break out george it it looks like it's it it just it literally just got above the 200 day for the first time i don't know in like three months and it yeah it well i want to hear when you're done we're gonna have jeff up to talk about the short interest on okamoto anyway right. so, 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 anyway, so newman, did, what was, so newman what's to, up I did want to mention one thing about a stock in japan that i've always watched right eight three zero one right this is the bank of japan Okay. If the Fed had a stock, it would trade like this. This is what the BOJ, it never trades. It trades 100 shares a day or something. 
But this stock, you know, in, um, you know, in 07 was uh, 175,000 yen. It's now 26,000 yen. So when I look at this, right, that's sort of the state of the financial industry, the financial uh, industry in Japan. Okay. So it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, just keep it on your radar. 8301JP. Again, it's the Bank of Japan as it trades. Now I wanted to, I've been listening, but I've been kind of jammed up and I'm not going to be able to spend a ton of time. But um, I was interested to hear what uh, Mr. Hirsch had to say. Sounds very interesting. I think we are at a spot here where it, there, there's, there's gnashing teeth everywhere and, and everyone's got a sort of different perspective. Um, this morning, I sort of came across the, uh, I came across the, you know, Yardini has one view, Gartman has another view, Robini has another. Um, everyone's sort of all over the map here. And I think we are in sort of, what I'd call like a shell shock moment in, in, in the markets. I mean, I wouldn't say like in, there was yesterday was the shell shock or whatever, but everyone's really having a tough go of this. It's not fun other than Tommy Thornton and his magical calls on reversals, which I've never seen much like that in this kind of a tape. I got to think a lot of people getting chopped up and just doing less and, and not really loving this. Um, Jeff uh, Hirsch made a very important point about earnings season and where we are. There's a ton coming down the pike, right? In the next two to three weeks, earnings, uh, the, the peak of earnings, the Fed. So I think it's a real tough spot here. It's sort of like dip a toe in. Um, if it works, maybe you do more. But if you lose that toe, don't, don't, don't stick another toe in just yet. It's a real tough tape here. Um, and that's kind of what I got. Um, and, uh, you know, George, I, I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, a couple months ago, we talked about sort of death by sandpaper as opposed to uh, plunge. And I wondered, it feels to me at this point, the sandpaper route is probably more favored because everyone's sort of mixed and confused here. I wondered if you, if you saw a catalyst for something that would be more than that, like not death by sandpaper, but death by uh, hacksaw, so to speak. Well, no, I, I think you got it totally right. Death, death, death by sandpaper is uh, looking like the way it's going to be. But you know what it is, Mark? I mean, Mark, you ask a seemingly simple question, but you know it's impossible to answer. There may well be something. I don't I mean, I, I could enumerate what the risks are. You know, one of these emerging markets blowing up or whatever. But it'll be, it, it, if something happens, it'll come out of left field. It'll be impossible to identify. And importantly, I mean, it's, it's always a priori. We, we never able to identify what it is. Okay. And so, Something could happen. I guess, I mean, when Tommy was talking before about, you know, sentiment just being a condition, I mean, when you get low volume, you get sandpaper markets, you got crappy sentiment, the flows, you know, Shrub pointed out, we had some money out last week. And we'll get into, you know, September, October, September, September, October. And Jeff was going to speak next. I mean, you know, he correctly thought that, you know, short term when he was in a week or two ago, Mark would head up. It did that for a few days and then all bets off as of last Friday. And, you know, he nailed it. Um, but, you know, he was only a five and a half a scale of one to 10 being bullish, but was more interesting was what came next. It was, you know, beyond that. And I think the drop dead date was the 26th or 27th of July, which is today or tomorrow. He was on a scale of one to 10. He was, he was, he was a 15 on his bearishness beyond that. So the higher conviction was that call, but, you know, Mark, the way I look at it, I don't know what the catalyst is, but you've been around long enough. When you just see this kind of setup, this sandpaper market with low volume, 
crappy news. It it doesn't it doesn't take much, and 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 we're never able to figure out what it is going to be ahead of time anyway. So. I don't like the setup. I mean, listen, most normal people just be in cash, like Hirsch was saying, go to the beach. Uh, you know, if you want to make money shorting, that's fine, but be sure sure to listen to Thornton telling you when to cover. Um, it's not fun. I think it's the most important thing you said. It's not fun. I mean, yeah, it's it's not. I would just I got to so I got to get moving for a one o'clock, but um, I wanted to just add my one potential like it's obviously as you say george bit of an unknown unknown right what could be that catalyst i need i want everyone to really think about this and it's a bit of a personal thing because i've made this move to this sort of that's where i'm going with it i think this esg bubble unwind and risk screwed up not screwed up forced by russia and the energy and foods insecurity i really think that that could be if I had to bet, pick one thing, it's kind of that's that's my leading candidate as a trouble spot, because, look, the U.S. government believes we are winning in Ukraine. They also believe a ton of other crazy things. And so you continue to bullshit everyone like that. Sorry for my French there. If you continue that and risks get mad and become opaque and nobody really knows what they're involved in and why. You get this thing where everyone's like, holy smokes, what is going on here? And I think that that, to me, if I had to pick one to keep an eye on, it's it's that. So uh, that's what I got to say. And I got to uh, hop on a call here. I apologize. But George, as Newman, always, Newman, great, great Newman, 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 fabulous. Keep, keep it up, man. We'll talk later. Talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye. That's Thank great. You. And with that, we go to my good friend, Mr. Jeff Garbaz. Um, Jeff, how you doing, man? Hey, good. How are you? Awesome. What's on your mind? It's a good thing I don't cover Japanese stocks, so I can avoid having to comment on the uh, the condom company. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, question for Neely, because I love like the thought process and stuff. And one theme that I've paid a lot of attention to over time is the change from the time I graduated from college, which is 1986 to now. Um, when I graduated from college, it was 60% male graduates to 40% uh, women. And now it's com- completely flipped the other way so it's 60 percent women to 40 percent men and with this whole idea of the six percent baby births etc one one stock that uh that people want to trash and say oh it's going to come to an end it's, it, um this this baby boom thing will propel it forward forever is is lululemon and the short sellers have been playing in it for a long time so i'm wondering a what does she think about this demographic thing and um, isn't that something that basically every consumer company better be thinking about? Because um, if women are the majority of college graduates, they're the ones that are making the money. They're the ones that are spending it as well. And um, then secondly, um, how it plays into Lulu. To me, it just it just makes it you know want to continue. Um, so if she could answer both parts of those, that'd be great. I, I can't answer anything stock specific just okay. for the nature of what I do. But okay. um but what I what Just I can the demographic sh- yeah demographic. for sure what what um what I can share with you though is uh, imagine imagine millennial moms and uh, how they might treat their children if they've treated their pet and their plants with such reverence, right? I mean, I think this is, right? I mean, (laughs) if if you want to just like, you know, do you think they're going to put them on the lower, you know? uh, No, no, right? 
Um, I feel badly actually for Fido and for, you know, the tomato plants, because they're very likely going to get, you know, kind of stuck to the side as um, a new, a new prince or princess, you know, enters into the house. So um, I'm, I'm very intrigued by this. And I think the other thing that people just don't really realize is they're like, well, millennials have been around for a while and they've been having, yeah. If you look at the population um, birth rates by year and kind of were to stack up the whole millennial, uh, um, you know, each annual year of where they are in 2022, the, the the peak of the wave they're they're turning 32 this year you know so they're really it's very back end weighted to the to the span of the age demographic you know if it's like call it 27 to 5 or whatever like the big bulk of that wave is at about you know kind of 27 to 32 not at the 40 to 45 so we're i think we've been waiting for this for a while but people have been thinking about millennials monolithically and not actually where the 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 um the volume right of the millennial population actually is, so I think it could really surprise people. But yeah, we're we're trying to do what we can, talking to boardrooms about this and getting folks prepared for what um, all the different nuances of a baby boom might be because we haven't well, seen it for years. Hey, hey, yeah. Jeff, hey, Jeff, yeah. Jeff, just to say, so I was trying to stay away from individual stocks for Neely, but um, okay. but I got a question for both of you. Same question, but different angle. So we talked before about people that buying, increasingly buying what they what they need to buy, not what they what they have to buy, not what they want to buy. So Jeff, it's sort of like I'm I'm, I'm lobbing the ball into the into you into the pivot. I'm give me just where you want. I know what you're going to do with this. So Jeff, I want you to take the opposite end, the necessities, and um, talk to me about what the Costco chart looks like. In absolute terms, also in relative terms, not just relative to the market, but relative to other retail stocks. And then Neely, I know you can't speak specifically on companies, but maybe just generically, we'll let Jeff go first. Companies that are focusing on necessities, I don't know, grocery stores, maybe grocery stores are getting hit by adverse mix ships, I don't know. But in a general sense, how are companies that are focusing on necessities faring? So Jeff, first to you, what does Costco look like? Yeah, let's let's break them down. Let's call them the uh, the need stocks and the want stocks, right? And um, we now know that obviously from Walmart that um, that they're basically in the need phase at this point. They can t- and and their want type of person is much different than a Costco person demographically because it's upper middle class, lower upper class. From my sociology classes from college, I still kind of remember that they look they look a lot better. I mean, Costco looks a hell of a lot better than um than like a walmart does and then look at today like one stock just stupidly i stumbled into it for this week that i'm short is kmb kimberly clark well guess why they're getting hit today because walmart's in trouble and so um they're they're struggling today so i think yeah i've been focusing george like if i look at my uh our short stuff for this week it is exactly what you just said um the names i'm sure that kind of kind of fit into that our um, RH, I'm back with that one again. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and it's fallen apart this week. I mean, it's gone from like 270 down to 250 and change. Uh, tractor Supply looks like it's just getting ready to, to roll over. Kimberly Clark, um, yeah, yeah, you know that, that. I think that's a great idea. Um, I think that the need stuff it could really—they're um, using it, but 
you got to define it, I think, by the demographics of it and then look at the companies that, that kind of fit into that. That's why I, I really like Lulu here. I just think that the people that go into a Lulu store are a hell of a lot different person than goes into uh, to, to Walmart. And I'm lucky that, you know, I have a wife who worked retail her whole life, you know, finished at, you know, Land's End. But, um, yeah, I kind of I kind of would rather be long to Lulu and then short like, you know, like some of these other stuff where they're really struggling, where the margins are much worse. I mean, we heard this from Walmart today. The margins are much, much worse on the need stuff than the want stuff. And that's what's what's going to kill them, even though their revenues are going to go up. It's it's like the wrong mix of business they're getting right 100%, now. hundred percent, hundred percent. Uh, Neely, could you speak in generic general terms? I know we don't, we don't want to get too granular, but just how need companies are doing compared to want companies. Well, the one that immediately comes to mind from a sector perspective would be fast casual. And here's why. If you were to look at um, home ownership in the United States under the age of 35, okay, you would basically see that from 2006 to 2016, we saw just constant headwind of declines in that home ownership rate. Okay. Like it was not lovely that it provided the fodder that millennials would never own a home during that whole time, the 10 years of that. But if you think about who grew from 2006 to 2016, right, it's the rise of the fast casual, the $5 coffees, the $10 burritos, the $20 salads, right? Like that is who really benefited. And, you know, as that reverses, and you can actually go back and look at this, George, I would recommend, um, uh, you know, you could actually go back and look at this from an inverse relationship. There's a pretty decent inverse relationship between home ownership under the age of 35 and, um, and just restaurant spending and retail sales broadly. So, uh, you know, we, we're just kind of waiting for that shoe to drop, I suppose. And maybe, but I don't really track those stocks or what have you, but yeah, from a category I, perspective. I, I mean, Neely, I'm showing my age now. I'm sorry, but, you know, I was having a conversation the other day with somebody about um, a young person who was uh, in their late 20s uh, trying to make ends meet. Uh, you know, they've got student loans, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah, I want to be empathetic, but when we were growing up, okay, even adjust for inflation, you know, if someone said to you, this is before Starbucks, someone said to you, hey, you know what, go out and spend five or six bucks on a coffee. I, I, I couldn't believe it again. I was in Cape May. The money people are spending on stupid shit like that, like, it may not sound like much, but who in their right mind amongst us that are older would have thought spending this type of money on coffee? Like, it's just stupid. And there's all that, that, that's a function of the, you know, you said the home ownership went down, but also the, the excess we lived in it was a great moderation, you know, pricing power went up, blah, 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 blah. But $6 coffee, that's not a need. It's a want. And there's a lot of crap like that. I mean, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, that might be too harsh here, Neely. No, not at all. I think we're arguing the same. I mean, the the day the the thing I like to joke about with clients occasionally is like, what's the first thing you buy the day you sign your life away on a mortgage? It's not a five thousand dollar cruise, right? Like that's not what you're doing that day. Like everything we have thought about millennial behavior prior to home ownership, prior to having children, literally needs to get scrapped and relearned. 100% Neely. 100 yes. This, this experience crap, 
It's like no price is too high to pay for cheap thrills, whatever it might be. 100%. You know, or and take, you know, food delivery companies where, I mean, all this bullshit. I mean, going out to eat. Hey, how about cooking some food? I mean, it is my, you know, I don't know about you, Neely, but like you go out to eat now. You know, I don't, I don't love that high money, but a restaurant, which, you know, a couple of years ago, you might go out, a couple entrees, maybe a couple appetizers, a couple glasses of wine, I don't know, 80 bucks, 90 bucks, whatever. I'm just talking out of my hat, 70 bucks. Let's call it 80. You go out now, it's like 120, 130. I'm like, are you crazy? It's not that I can't afford it. It's like, it's against my, I can't in good conscience spend that kind of money. It's ridiculous. I put the gal in frugal. Okay, I just want to put that out there. I still drive to this day. My first big girl purchase, it's a 2004 Audi A4 six-speed manual transmission. Won't ever get carjacked in the city with this thing, right? Like, I love this car. I love that it's rusty. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Like, I put the gal in frugal. (laughs) Love it, Neely. Absolutely love it. Hey, Jeff. Hey, George. Yeah, yeah. I was going to just say that uh, anecdotally, you know, I, I'm, I'm like disguised in the millennial age group because we didn't have our, our boy, Max, until I was 45. And now he's 12 years old. And as you know, he's a, he's a big swimmer. And um, so we're at all these events all the time. We're going to dinners and all the millennial people, all, all the people that are Max's buddies' parents are mostly... I'd call it late thirties to maybe, maybe some early forties. Every once in a while, there's someone who's my age, but yeah, you're right about the spending thing. It's incredible. I mean, we just had it this weekend where um, we had to go to dinner three nights after, after three days in a row of the state meet and different dinners. And like, I'm like, this is, this is freaking stupid. What we're paying for dinner, you know, like basically three of us, it's like $140. It's just like a decent restaurant. It's just the, the inflation in the restaurant side is amazing, but, the, the point back on the millennials, which Neely said was, and the one th- thing she did say about it is they're the most educated generation of uh, that's out there. Like they, they blow away everyone else educationally. And so they'll figure, they'll figure that out. And then, you know, like the consumer is not dead by, by any stretch, thanks to them and what they're going to do. And I agree. I see how they, I see how kids get treated like with swim and having to buy like, like the thing is under 12, you can't buy a tech suit, but they get as close as they can and they'll spend as much money as they need to. And they'll spend as much money, you know, going to a thousand dollars swim camp, George, for four days. And yeah, the, the consumer is not dead. Thank you very much to the millennials. You know, it's going to come back. It's great stuff, Jeff. Just just hang there. Uh, let's go. I want to do Trendmar, Trend Wizzo and Weimar. Hey, Trend Wizzo, good to hear from you. What's going on, man? Trent Wizzo, please unmute yourself. Yeah. Hey, George. Uh, thank you. Great forum. Uh, Neely, one question for you. Uh, this is based on just my experience. What you shared is the precise data that went into one of the investments I'd made about four years ago with uh, uh, with the folks in... Uh, just hang on one second. There's a background noise. I need to... Yeah. So uh, I'd made an angel investment in a startup firm with some ex-Amazonians and ex-Facebook folks, uh, they were optimizing these digital ads for uh, vendors, third-party sellers who were selling on Amazon. And they got an exit last year just before the uh, carnage started at about 30 times ARR, uh, which is pretty cool 
because <laughs> eight of my other angel investments went straight to zero. This was the ninth one, which gave uh, more than hundred bagger. Um, but there are generational uh, businesses which are focused on uh, this millennial mom kind of uh, uh, target audience, and they are trying to build uh, brand aggregator kind of firms uh, focused on that. So two questions from that, uh, Neely, uh, and also for uh, Jeff and George. Um, from your perspective, you must have seen these kind of generational changes earlier as well, right? Based upon your experience and based upon your study of the uh, history. Um, from my standpoint, I have uh, done the study just primarily based upon my experience. I'm in my 40s and um, I've also read what Neil Harvey and Strauss and those guys have come up with their fourth turnings and those sort of uh, theses and which, you know, so far uh, they built that thesis back in the 90s and so far it has been turning out the same way. Um, so two, two aspects, thematically speaking, uh, which specific areas other than consumer discretionary would be primarily important uh, from your standpoint uh, as a thematic investment, let's say on the other side of this uh, uh, market, right? So currently, it's a market to go short, you know, short or flat, as George keeps saying. But on the other side, where would you focus on? Uh, and second part is purely from financial services, uh, from this uh, demographic kind of uh, situation. One, there's a lot of inheritance that is going to happen. How does it change your business? Um, this is specifically for Neely. Would you be willing just to reword that second question for me, please? Yeah. Sure. So from financial services perspective, right, um, how does it impact uh, as generational wealth gets transferred and also as we head into the fourth turning as as well as uh, the millennial uh, generation uh, starting either to plan for their finances uh, versus, um, uh, versus handing it down to the next generation as we go along for the next 10 years, so in the next decade? I'll answer that with a perspective not not a proclamation um i'm not in the camp that believes that we're going to have the the transfer of wealth that financial advisors constantly are out there with um most uh for the primary reason that i think a lot of it will either get invested early into their children's lives like i think that you are seeing parents actually help out with big purchases like homes and, and what have you, or investments in private education for, you know, children. Like, I think it's going to be invested and transferred possibly like in during life. Um, and then of course the cost of healthcare and end of life care is so substantial. One thing I would have you um, poke around on, and it's not something I've been able to solve specifically. Otherwise I'd have a chart and I'd be able to put it up in the nest for you. But it's a hypothesis that um, the way that we do end of care or end of life care housing, right? Um, now more than ever, you basically have to show like your full like asset portfolio to get in on any of those places, um, and they kind of transfer. You basically end up transferring ownership, a lot of your home equity, what have you, to those facilities. So something I would just have you poke around on is like where's the seepage of that transfer of wealth prior to death and then actually at the point of transference of death. So that would be one thing um, I would have you poke around, but we, we, we're not in that camp. We would not actually hold that. Um, and then on the just broader discretionary categories, you know, uh, 
you know, I think we could all like sit here and go, you know, baby related stocks or, you know, parenting related stocks or, um, you know, apparel related. I mean, kids, kids, um, bodies change as they're growing. Like they need multiple sizes in purchase incidences per year, right. As they age from zero to 16, like your body physically changes multiple times per year. So there's, there's things like that, uh, that you could kind of obviously think through and, and think about. Um, but you know, I don't think I'm especially qualified to answer that. Right. Thanks for the question. Thanks for that. Uh, let's go to Weimar. Weimar, uh, good to see you. What's up, man? Hey there. Uh, so I, I, kind of one comment and then uh, maybe a question. So first thing on the 16 to 19 year olds, and I messaged Neely about this. Um, one of the things I've come to realize is talking to some coworkers. And I, I followed up after I talked to one a lot of them now don't work because they're busy doing extracurricular activities and internships to get into college. They're singularly focused on that, getting into the right college. So I think that's actually depleted a lot of the workforce out there. And that's something you'll see kind of with your theory about the doting parents and grandparents. A lot of that is really geared toward, you know, getting them the right start to get into the right college to get the right job eventually. And then my second uh, point and really question is, how do you think the unemployment's really going to play out here? And I have a bit of a thesis that 2000 to 2001 might be the relevant recession to compare it to, um, where we actually saw unemployment go up a bit over 2% from, I think it was around 439 to about 6.3% it topped out at. It took a, a bit over a year to achieve that. Um, but I, I'm sort of basing that on the fact that typically unemployment, um, at least in the theory of John Maynard Keynes, was a reaction to, or an attempt to cause deflation in labor prices because in his construct, labor prices are sticky. They don't fall. So you lay people off to achieve deflation there. Well, we just came through two years of very high inflation, probably far higher than they stated. And real wages have mostly fallen, particularly for the middle and probably higher end of the spectrum. So I wonder uh, if anyone out there thinks inflation will be quite a bit, or unemployment will stay quite a bit lower than in maybe the prior two recessions. So yeah, I think I think I mean, environment. I think I touched on that a little while ago. That's my belief. It's going to be because we there's not as much labor participation rate as Neil was explaining has has gone down, and um, we have a record number of unfilled jobs. And companies, I think, are going to, uh, you know, hoard labor uh, because of, uh, you know, lack of labor supply. I I don't know. Neely, do you have a view? Neely? Um, Well, first, I just want to say, um, um, I I can't help but say Weimar because I took German for eight years. Okay, so there you go. Weimar. Uh, I I, I 100% agree with you on that point that you were making about the you know, 16 and 19 getting repurposed, right, for other opportunities. And interestingly, I think I have to go back and confirm this, but I want to say like, there's like this great old chart that exists around like, the number of people employed, um, you know, with college degree versus not college degree, like every, every once in a while, you'll see that kind of floated around. I think it was around 2000, where that started to flip. And so it just became far more competitive too, right, for the college systems which makes sense too, with just the rise of the millennial population, more it's supply and demand, more people, <laughs> um, fewer spots, uh, which is also why the price of college went up. Um, that and the government deciding to give 
funding to everybody. So um, there's that. So yes, all all of that above. Um, but in terms of the unemployment, I don't know. I, I mean, I I don't I don't know how that's going to play out. I do think though that we'll see two things happen first. I think you will start to see job openings pull back. You already see it, by the way, in manufacturing. So if you look at the typically you'll have most of the media sources quote 13 different industries on any of the jobs data, right? Jolt's data. Um, I think there's about 28 that you can actually look down into specifically the manufacturing component of job openings. It's still a growth rate year over year, but that growth rate, the second derivative has just come in substantially from its peak in February. So um, which kind of fits the broader narrative of like manufacturing new orders pulling back before other aspects of the economy. So I think you're already starting to see that as a leading indicator. And the second thing, of course, is jobless claims, um, something we track prolifically. Uh, it's a high frequency data set, right, of course. But we're looking at it relative to three years ago, not on a year over year basis, because you kind of want to get it based versus kind of a normal sort of period not there's a lot of monkey business in the last couple of years on jobless claims um and you are starting to see that tick up again so on that basis so those would be the two things you would see as a leading indicator before we'd have to know that that answer thanks for the question barmer that was great all right we got two more questions questioners and i think we're going to call it a day we're going to go to ovo and then we're going to go to andrew ovo floor is yours thanks george hi neely um Quick question on, on the urbanization um, kind of or de-urbanization trend we've seen since COVID. You know, just wondering, I mean, urbanization ratio is typically a good way to measure prosperity of an economy. I mean, I think William Bernstein talked about this in one of the books I read of his. Um, do you see the, I mean, what do you see in terms of consumer trends as people have moved out of cities? And, and how do you think that, you know, impacts the economy maybe on a, you know, five-year look forward uh, basis? That's such a great question. I don't know. George, do you have a perspective or does anyone else on the panel have a perspective about that? That's a great question. And OVO, I really appreciate our banter in the back channel too, by the way. It's good stuff. Awesome. I have no idea. I mean, I would imagine <laughs> it's going to be hard to have that question without like having a political conversation too. Uh, I live in the Twin Cities um, and, you know, the carjacking comment is not not a throwaway comment like it's it's literally every day there's just carjackings and robberies every day in the middle of the midwest minnesota so um you know it's i think the cities aren't doing themselves any favors right now of being an attractive place to live hopefully we'll have a better that was a great question Obia. hopefully we'll come up with a better answer in one of the subsequent rooms all right let's go to andrew for the last question andrew please unmute yourself Oh, hey, George. Thanks. Um, I just had a quick question regarding the resilience of like a Cisco um, going back to the, you know, those restaurant comments. I, I, I've expected them to roll over a little bit. And um, REITs, um, the REITs, everybody's seemingly hiding out in, uh, in them. And I figured with the rates going up, they're going to they're going to crack soon. But I guess the strong net leases are, are, are where uh, people are parking some money. Uh, you know, what? let's turn to Jeff Arbaz. Jeff, you're still there. Um, could you just comment on Cisco, the stock, the food distributor guy, not the router guy, and also on REITs? Are you there, Jeff? I guess not. Hey, George, I'm here. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> there were two questions. One was on Cisco, the food kind, SYS, not the router guy. And the other one was on REITs. What, do you, what are the charts? What does your work suggest on Cisco and on REITs? 
Um, I can answer half of it. I, I'm pretty sure Cisco is just kind of like, it's okay, not great in the work. I, I stepped out to grab some lunch. But I know on the REITs, uh, the real estate stuff is definitely kind of struggling in my work a little bit now. Um, I When I was looking for short ideas, I almost put some of them on this week. So that's kind of what yeah. my thought is. I would just say they're, they're, not, they're, not, they're not heavily shorted. Yeah. Um, the one thing I'll say real estate related, though, you and I talked about this yesterday, is the shorting in the home builders is out of control. <laughs> and, um, you know, they've had a rally here. And um, it, doesn't look, it doesn't look like they're covering. So for what it's worth, um, I think that is something I want to watch and kind of see how it goes, especially because of how those numbers are going up so dramatically. So I think that's a, I think that you're going to learn a lot about real estate by following the home builders now. George, you going to agree with that? 100 percent. I'll just take it one step further uh, on the on the REIT side. Uh, and Andrew, no REIT papers. But uh, <laughs> guesstimated, um, Jeff, I'm muting I'm you because it's some background noise. The birds are chirping. It was Andrew, there's a paper that came out where they guesstimated um, that New York real estate, I think it suffered order of magnitude, a decline of $500 billion. $500 billion. And whether it's too high or too low, who knows? Order of magnitude is what's important. And that's not unique to New York. And so I think you were talking before about, you know, sticky leases and whatever. Um, it's clear, and, and Neely, this goes back to a, a sort of demographic question. We're rejiggering, you know, the, the, the demographic map of the United States, where we work, where we live, where we play. And there are winners and losers here. You know, for every person that runs to Florida, that's one less person in New York. Um, sorry. Um, so I think reshuffling the deck here is going to be a lot of winners and losers. And Andrew, to your question about REITs, I mean, I would avoid the office sector like a plague. They may be melting ice cubes. It may not happen all at once. Depends on the, on the, on the term of their debt. But I think, I think office real estate is a disaster. Housing, I think is a disaster. Um, I wouldn't own anything real estate related. Yeah, okay, fine, I get it. Rates coming down, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. But underlying businesses falling apart. And by the way, by the way, for when talks about industrial REITs and all that other stuff, I mean, there's been a lot of tweets out the last couple of days. Uh, oh, yeah, Gordon Johnson put out a terrific tweet. Follow him, at Gordon Johnson. A great thread chronicling um, the tech sector slamming the brakes on their real estate aspirations whether it's the number of warehouses Amazon's, you know, hiring out for Walmart or this or that. Um, so they're slamming on the brakes. And so I think office is a disaster. I think industrial is questionable. I think housing is terrible. I just think REITs are a waste of time. I really do. When I short them, I haven't done enough work. But some of these things are going to go out of business. There's no question. Uh, just may take a long time because of the maturity, the term of the debt. All right. With that, ladies and gentlemen, um, we're almost at two and a half hours. I try to keep this under two hours, but it's supposed to be such an inter interesting room. And Neely, I blame you or give you the credit for taking the reins from Mr. Hirsch after he left. This has just been phenomenal. Uh, and Jeff, thank you for your input as well. Mr. Thornton is not here anymore, but he was terrific. It's a great room as always. Our next room is on Thursday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern. 
We have another terrific guest, Danny Moses, will be with us. That's going to be an awesome room. Hey, uh, George. Yes. Real quick. Yes. Make the kid make the kids work. I'm sorry. I, I I tried to lay low, but oh, I heard talking the kids talking about your kids and teenage kids. We did it 19 years ago. Kids cried. We moved to a small town. Both my kids worked and, and they did the sports and they did the academics. Got in college. Got scholarships. But we made them work at a pharmacy and a bank, and they had to talk to people that weren't like 17 in their little circle. And it worked out beautifully. Both of their careers, they could talk to a 60-year-old, they can talk to a 50-year-old. And they didn't like it at first. But later on, when they were out in the uh, workforce about eight years ago, they got compliments in the interview process in the first year. They said, you know, you can talk to people and put them in a situation where they have to deal with old man, Mr. Johnson, who's pissed off about his were wrong or the bank deposit bank teller where well i don't understand this and they got to help people anyway i know i'm being like uh like the old man giving advice but that's my two cents and i'm sorry to interrupt no carpathia that's fine i forgot i invited you up to speak you snuck in there but thank you for that contribution no you're speaking the truth you're speaking the truth and um you know whether it's working when you're 17 as a teenager or learning the ropes in the stock market and not getting blown up chasing meme stocks or listening to false prophets like Kathy Wood. Everyone's going to get education. No shortcuts. You know that and I know that. And thank you for that. I appreciate it. So in any event, um, so we're going to have Danny Moses on Thursday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern. Should be a great room. And uh, who knows what's going to happen. We get a lot of tech earnings, a lot of earnings this week. So Michelle had plenty more to talk about. I want to thank you, Neely. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for Carp Carpathia, Weimar, Tommy, et cetera, et cetera. It's been a great room, and I'll see all of you on Thursday at 11 a.m. Thanks very much. Take care. Bye-bye.